0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. My name is Scott Morris and I'm joined today by Drew Tavendale.
1: I decided to drink at the really inappropriate time, sorry. <laughs> Hello! Yes, so, a- alcohol may be required for this show.
0: Um, yes, today we are talking about some James Bond knockoffs. Now, James Bond, of course, is a stupendously successful and enduring force in cinema, and it's hard to avoid them entirely, even if you wanted to. But that's perhaps why we devoted an entire show to the entire James Bond series a few years back, which you should perhaps give a listen to if you haven't done so already. Uh, But, of course, there's always someone wanting a slice of that sweet Bond pie. So today, we're taking a look Mm, at some films. Hi. (laughs) <laughs> some films <laughs> some films that have drawn inspiration from Bond either as imitators, parodies, oddities, or even one that Bond itself liberally borrowed from. So, we're going to start borrowed, mm, Borrowed. <laughs> we're starting things off with a trip back to 1966 with Murderer's Row. And Drew, you are the man to tell us about that.
1: I am. Because there isn't anybody else here, so, no, so- <laughs> I guess it's by default... Uh, <laughs> Our star here is Dean Martin, who, in fact, was even older in this role than Roger Moore was when he began playing Bond. Uh, And not only does he have more miles in him than Moore did, they're city miles. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now, I don't want to be accused of ageism. I'd just like to point out that it's even more incredulous that the audience is expected to instantly buy young women swooning over Martin and to share his outrage Mm -hmm. that a young man calls him dad than it would have been with Moore. And because this is a Bond spoof... That happens a lot. <laughs> well, the young women, but anyway. I mean, and I say this, however, is a spoof. That, that's important thing. So there's not much value comparing the actors any further, except to say that Martin's light blue leisure suit here is even worse than Moore's in Live and Let Die, <laughs> if you can believe such a thing, since this example looks largely indistinguishable from pyjamas. Mm-hmm. But it may be possible I am digressing here. Digressing here. Uh, so to get back to the point, which is apparently eluding me massively. (laughs) Martin plays Helm, a US government counter-agent who is targeted for assassination by the Spectre analogue Big O. That's the Bureau (laughs) of International Government and Order. Which I imagine is exactly the opposite of what they'd want to do, but I guess it is a spoof on Spectre's names components as well. (laughs) Uh, But manages to successfully fake his death and avoid the hit. This frees him up to travel to Monte Carlo as postcard salesman Jimmy Peters in an attempt to infiltrate Julian Walls, Carl Malden's organization, and find the missing scientist Norm Solaris, whom Wall is kidnapped in order to coerce him into perfecting his heliobeam weapon. <laughs> yes, the man making a heliobeam weapon is called Solaris. A lot of these things, and we will be a running thread to this episode. Subtlety, <laughs> not a big concern. Yes. Really not. (laughs) During his intelligence gathering attempts he meets Anne-Margrette Susie who's also looking for information on the missing scientist although her interest is considerably more personal than Helm's with the scientist in fact being her father. They work together and more than work naturally to defeat Wall and save the scientist and hence the world. Any more time spent detailing the plot would be time wasted so we'll stop there. This is the second of four Matt Helm films that were produced between 1966 and 1969, all starring Martin and based loosely on novels by Donald Hamilton and is inspired by, and actually also seems to have inspired, various Bond films and Bond parodies. Indeed, the whole Bond and Bond parody world, um, of which we're <laughs> giving you just a, a small slice tonight, seems extremely incestuous. Yeah. I- I'll offer a few examples to give you a flavour of what I mean. The helio-beam space weapon has been seen in not only Diamonds Are Forever, where it was largely unchanged, but mm. also in a very similar format in Die Another Day. In this film, a strong henchman character with metal implants called yes. Ironhead comes across <laughs> with a magnet, more than a little reminiscent of Jaws in The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah. Helm drives a hovercraft through a city... though this is the crazy this is the parody right though incredibly it's moonraker the serious (laughs) film and not this comedy that contains the pigeon doing a double take at the hover gondola (laughs) and this is the thing that actually amused me most um having i've never even heard of this film before preparing for this episode secret agent helm being a fashion photographer must surely be the inspiration for austin powers having the same interest
2: yeah yeah
1: as i say very incestuous um (laughs) Self-referential and, and all sorts of things. Now, Murderous Row is very chauvinistic, partly as a product of its time, but also because it's playing into that trope and because it's a comedy, it largely gets a pass on that front. I'm less willing to forgive it for its code names, though, which are, for example, yes. Philippe for the French agent, <laughs> Ames for the British agent, and a Tempura for the Japanese. <laughs> But it's a passing thing, so not worth bothering too much about.
0: It's not generally the most progressive film, is what we're saying.
1: (laughs) No, uh, that would be fair. That that would be an accurate uh, assessment and also indictment of it. (laughs) Far from the worst either, though. Uh, Its Bond-style intro sequence really does look cheap and the hovercraft sequences shot in the Isle of Wight are most assuredly not convincing as Monaco because, you know, the Isle of (laughs) Wight. And similarly to many Bond films, the extended action sequence of the finale outstays its welcome and saw my attention diminish considerably. It's also surprisingly unscored, meaning that the sole soundtrack for the last portion of the film is the horrendous droning of hovercraft engines. (laughs) Unfortunately, the rest is pretty much all good. Martin is a bit old to be playing this role, but he wasn't called the king of cool for nothing, and he has an easygoing charm and swagger that fit the character perfectly. While not as good an actor, there's a definite Cary Grant vibe to Martin in this film. Opposite him, the incredibly vivacious Anne Margret is delightful, though, perhaps unsurprisingly, not given a huge amount of substance to do, unless you count dancing like she's taken all of the ecstasy, (laughs) while wearing a baby's bonnet made out of daisies matching dress too (laughs) Uh, so a a quick aside scott did you notice that for especially all the 60s films we watched here apart from maybe billion dollar brain which is incredibly drab but what were people smoking in the 60s that thought made them think that all of those clothes were in any way tolerable as well clothes
0: as best i can understand
1: everything Uh, (laughs) yes i think they were smoking everything i think (laughs) you're right there are some horrendous things going on here i really do digress Lalo Schifrin's Bond-inspired theme tune hits the mark, and is a riff rather than the nigh-on straight-up copying of a film we will come to shortly. And most importantly, though, Murderers Row is really quite funny. Matt Helm also has a government-issued spy harmonica. Need I say more?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I don't think I got quite as much out of Murderers Row as you did, but it's hard not to get behind an evil organisation that has a backup hovercraft in case of primary hovercraft failure. So that's that's a thing. (laughs) Yeah, I th- the thing that sticks out most in memory for me about this is just filler because there's so much filler in it. I mean, <laughs> how much time is spent in a discotheque just watching people dance? It's like half the film. Reveals <laughs> like, it. it's like, like this isn't a spy thriller. This is just this is just a discotheque that we have showing shown where everyone's dancing like nutcases.
1: <laughs> yeah, man, I know the flight. because the the one particular lengthy scene is where Anne Margret is in danger because yeah. she's wearing a. A brooch that contains an explosive that is activated by agitation,, yes. um, and so Matt Helm has to escape the evil um villain's lair in order to get back to this this nightclub, which isn't a nightclub, it's the middle of the afternoon and a summer's day in the middle of Monaco. <laughs> Go figure. And yeah, but they just seem to spend pretty much all the time it would take him to get her from the island he's on to the nightclub, showing so- her dancing, having taken all of the ecstasy. <laughs> yes, th- that's fair. Th- there's a lot of filler. I just still find it very entertaining, yeah, very that, funny.
0: I, it, it was an easy watch. Um, It didn't it outstay as welcome. It, it kind of flew by. I'm not sure that it does an awful lot to it. Carl uh, Malden is um, perhaps not the most charismatic bad guy you could have, um, but I suppose it, it works well enough for what it needs to do. Uh, but yeah, there's there's just things that were un- slightly annoying to me about it. Like it, it's clearly not taking itself particularly seriously. I didn't think it was quite so much of a parodies as it kind of turned out to be when I was putting this sort of show list together but uh, it it kind of sets out stall fairly early on where the the evil organisation have pretty decent headshots of all the rest of the agents but for Matt Helm all they have is a glass of glass of of booze because that's all you can associate with uh, Dean Martin. You've got to wonder if he's leaning into his alcoholism a little bit too heavily in this film.
1: (laughs) Yes I wasn't sure whether those were sort of um, Dean Martin things or because Bond always did drink a lot um, But like in his <laughs> But Martin drunk issues, a lot his, his, his government issued spy kit It's a bottle of Ballantyne's whiskey um, <laughs> Which when he picks it up is, um, There has a microphone on it saying basically We knew you'd be drinking, stop drinking now <laughs> He has to go do his Back up um, alcohol in the car While he's drinking, while he's driving um,
0: Yeah <laughs> You can tell it's not taking itself too seriously by the way they've written one-liners for pretty much everything that happens in it, but then written another couple of one-liners and just stuck them all one after each other rather than picking <laughs> the best one. So <laughs> it was perhaps not the most elegant way to structure a film, but it, it does what it needs to do well enough. It is a a, a very silly um, movie that I think would have probably deserves to be forgotten in the most part. It's, a, it's an interesting little piece of ephemera, and um, I'm sure if it came out, it would have raised a chuckle and sort of went off to... Not particularly with live long lives in, in anyone's mind. I'm surprised he, this got to four. Four films, yeah. yeah um I, I'm almost tempted to watch the rest of them just out of like, idle curiosity, but uh, it's not. this sort of thing you could see being you know, a one-off. But then again, I suppose if you make three Austin Powers films, I don't see any reason why you couldn't make four of this. So, yeah, um, yeah it's it's, uh, it's not quite as silly as Austin Powers. It's not quite as annoying, but I mean, it's it's really not all that far removed, which is perhaps surprising for a film from 1966.
1: Yeah. Um- it's uh i don't know it's i didn't expect much of honestly when i saw sort of my i shifted my perspective after having seen the other film i referenced i just want to wait to the joy of getting onto that Mm -hmm. uh when i heard the lalo Schifrin bond inspired theme and i'm thinking well this is a bit dodgy then i've realized actually no it's it's just more of a riff it's like that style of music rather than just trying to copy it but in, with enough changes to not be sued. Yeah. Which is not what happens in the other film. And then <laughs> uh, but that kinda set me on edge a wee bit and then the, the animated art kinda the like dancing girls and stuff in the intro, I'm like, Yeah, okay. <laughs> and then everybody and these dogs ripped off a bond into it at some point. This is a particularly cheap looking one. Yeah. <laughs> but then when it actually gets into it and the... Uh, the ridiculous nature of everything that's happening and all of the drinking and the f- the photography thing and sort of ah no, right, okay. Yeah. This is daft and it's just the right sort of daft and I, I having expected nothing of I really, really enjoyed this. Yeah. Um, honestly I only lost interest at the end because of it just like being a like twenty minute hovercraft chase. Yeah. And <laughs> hovercraft engines as the only soundtrack. <laughs> that's quite grating. Yes. Everything else is and I uh, it's a thing that could very easily play the just wrong, make my eyes roll so hard that it's stuck in the back of my head but when they're having bits like a picture of Frank Sinatra getting damaged yeah. it's like, okay <laughs> it's, I it's it's a ridiculous in-joke but I still kind of appreciated that, but although yeah. part of my brain was, like, kind of knocking on my higher consciousness. <laughs> going, You're not wondering why there's a picture of Frank Sinatra on the wall of the disco at all. This, yeah. No. <laughs> I don't care. It's, it was funny enough. Um, it was just... Uh, everything's played just right. Everybody's kind of having fun. And, and everybody's having, knowing also the audience is going to be having fun. Yeah. It was just really nicely pitched in a way that you don't think people are just taking a piss or anything. It was still... While some of the shots kind of look dodgy because apparently Dean Martin wouldn't leave the United States, which is why it wasn't shot in Monte Carlo as it was meant to have been. Right. It's why, yes, they used the Isle of Wight as well for, for yeah, look, Isle of Wight does not look yeah. like Monaco. It really <laughs> does not. Despite all those things that could have gone wrong with it, it's just, just it's a great deal of fun.
0: Yes, likewise, I didn't really know what to expect from a citizen, and I think perhaps that I was expecting it to be a little bit more serious than it actually turned <laughs> out to be was, was perhaps uh, put me on a bit of a wrong footing with it. But yeah, I, I don't. I didn't really mind it. It didn't really do anything that made me particularly upset with it. So yes, I think if you're, if you're in the market for a, a throwback Bond parody, then it's as a good a choice as any. I'm not, I don't know how... Uh, popular this is these days. I'd never heard of this franchise at all before I was going to do some no, research no, no. on this. it would not even come close to impinging on my consciousness. So um, yeah, if, if it sounds like it's interesting, I, would, I wouldn't dissuade you from uh, seeking out if you uh, like the cut of its chip from what we're saying here, um, but yeah. I wouldn't be beating down any doors to, to get all of it either.
1: Now, this is something we did mention back when we did our Bond podcast too, uh, but because it's hard to kind of think about now where it's the films that are the really famous thing. Mm. But back when Doctor No was released, 1962, it was released because the books were extremely popular. Yes. And the books are very much in the background nowadays. Yeah. So that's why Bond got made. But I don't know, it seems to have been very quickly. The, the Bond films got incredibly successful. And then the first of these Matt Helm films was just four years after Doctor No. Yeah. <laughs> and it seems to have been that it's a wee Bond Cottage industry, or even like sub industry within the sub genre of like Bond knockoffs, parodies, and spoofs, and just straight up rip offs, yeah, came about really, really quickly. Yes, and this seems to be right in the height of that first wave of them. Yeah, I would think. I mean, if you're not familiar with the other Bond stuff, then you're not going to appreciate half of this, but I would imagine most people, certainly by cultural most says, are nowadays. Yeah, yeah, but because this, even though it's a comedy. It clearly has inspired those other Bond films, like I mentioned earlier. That some of the the mainline Bond films have clearly, it's possible that they were actually both based on books. I'm not confirming all of the contents of the books to know for certain, mm-hmm. but it does really seem like they've straight up stolen some of the ideas from yeah. <laughs> from the film. And also, if you are familiar with Austin Powers, some of the tone of this is quite similar. And like I said, that thing with the photographer stuffs like this is going to be love. Austin Powers has got to have come from this. I'm sure it must have done. It. It's too similar to not be. Yeah, yeah. So if you like the Austin Powers films, just from that point of view, it might be worth checking this out. Yeah, yeah. Also, Spy Harmonica. <laughs> Essential. <laughs> yes. Right. I guess that's all we have to say about that then, Scott. See. Si. Yes, so let's move on to something, um, let's say, slightly less glamorous and colourful.
0: Yes, we need to put our tongues uh, firmly in our cheeks or out of our cheeks. I don't... Anyway... uh... Billion Dollar Brains, next film we're going to talk about, and we'll have mentioned this uh, in passing back when we covered the other Harry Palmer films in our criminally underappreciated Spycraft February 2016 episode. Go check it out. But mainly I think I was talking about this in a negative sense, but this was based (laughs) on a much younger and therefore stupider me of 20 plus years ago's memory of it. So um, (laughs) to be clear from the off, this is the worst of the series proper, assuming you rightly ignore the two mediocre made for TV efforts, but it's an awful lot better than I remembered it to be. Uh, Kane returns, naturally, as Harry Palmer, now running a failing private uh, detective agency, but still charmingly contemptuously rebuffing his old boss, Colonel Ross, uh, Guy Dolman's job offer. Happily for us, a, f- a plot phones him up. A computer-generated <laughs> voice offering him a seemingly simple courier job to Helsinki. So, off Palmer Pops, finding on the other end his old friend Leo Newbigin, Carol Malden. him again, working alongside Anya, Francois Dorliacs, uh, who is taking orders from a familiarly voiced computer, which is apparently based in Texas and belonging to a billionaire oil tycoon and diehard patriot General Midwinter, played by Ed Begley. Now, without going too deep into his plans, he's very much against communism and he's doing his darndest to bring about its downfall, up to and including mobilising somehow his own army and using the unparalleled predictive Power of his computer brain, by which he means a computer. He's not a cyborg, <laughs> that would have been too awesome. <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, Leo has not been entirely truthful with his inputs on the results of his actions and his network of entirely fictional agents across Latvia, whose paychecks he's been pocketing, and so garbage in equals garbage out. So Midwinter stands ready to kick off World War Three and invade Latvia. Well, Harry Palmer is caught in the middle uh, between his old boss Colonel Ross and similarly returning KGB acquaintance Colonel Stock. Now. I think the excesses of Billion Dollar brain stick out a bit more in my mind, uh, certainly compared to the more grounded Ipcris file in Funeral in Berlin, uh, Ed Begley's purposely grandstanding scenery during turn, and the characters' plans stick out like a sore thumb amidst the rest of the series and even the first half of this film, which is broadly as low-key as all the other films that it turns out is the point he is a ridiculous character and so he's ridiculed explicitly by the characters I know writers use subtext and they're cowards. (laughs) (laughs) If you're going for excess I suppose Ken Russell at the time would be the man to call. Uh, I'm not as familiar with his work as perhaps I ought to be but certainly he's making a stylistic preference felt here particularly when Midwinter is going ham towards the end of the film Uh, I'm not 100% sure it works but I'm more open to it this time around with a somewhat broader film palette to draw from it's a bit like getting David Lynch in to do the next Bond film. It was perhaps a little bit too different for my younger self to begin to appreciate, but hey, it's certainly different. You've got to give it that. (laughs) Um, Now, in other company, it's more Otrey Nature might have made this uh, the Oddball Recommendation Award for the podcast, but boy, do we have some right doozies coming up for you later later that make this (laughs) seem kind of pedestrian. So, um, overall, it's better than I remembered, and there's a lot in here that I like. It looks distinctive, Kane remains excellent, and there's some really sharp dialogue in here. Um, almost uniquely in today's selection, it has characters with understandable motives that are related to you in ways that make a degree of logical sense. You know, it covers the very basics of storytelling, and, well, I'll take what I can get in this episode, um, but it is still a big step down from the Ipkris file and Führung in Berlin, uh, but perhaps not quite as big a one as I remember.
1: Yeah, this film for me was very much a film of two parts, and sad to say that the second part of it I found considerably less interesting than the first. Yeah. So the Which first is
0: entirely half, fair. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, the first half I, I'm generally very intrigued, like because you've got the computer voice and the phone, you don't quite know what's going on. There's Carl mm. Malden. Is he a bad guy? Is he a good guy? Well, he's clearly not a good guy, but is he necessarily a bad bad guy? Like, okay, yeah. You've got that sort of. The intrigue going on. I'm not quite sure what's happening because uh, this is the first time I've seen this film, mm-hmm. so it's it's all new to me, and I'm, I'm quite intrigued and and I'm hoping they would play a bit more with um, Harry Pam having he's like he's coerced back to MI6, yeah. um, MI5, or whichever one he works for. So it's supposed to work of MI5, but they're not supposed to work outside of the country. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Th- this maybe doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I do tend to get hung up on minutiae. I know it's a failing. Yeah, so and he's you kinda know, interesting setting and you're not quite sure what's what's going on and then you have the almost comedy Latvian Patriots group yeah. but who also tried to kill them and I'm like, Okay, this is it's kinda of strange, but I'm quite liking it, I'm quite interested and then and I'm thinking because you don't know at this point what the computer is like, yeah. like, like, where the orders are coming from, and I'm thinking, oh, is this just going to be like there's an actual kind of supercomputer, an artificial intelligence someone's made, but it's kind of taken over or something? Which is, I assumed where it was going. Yeah, I, I really thought it was going to be like this was like the actual the mastermind was the computer, and uh, uh, yeah,
0: it, it would have made a much more interesting film <laughs> if yes. that was the case. Yeah.
1: Although it possibly would have cost the actual, I noticed in the the opening credits, the the title sequence, they used the actual. The old British style of billion, which was actually a million million. Yeah, like, yeah, That would have cost a shed load of money. Yeah. It was, it was Billions used to be different. Now, at least in English-speaking countries, they all tend to use the same one, which is... Uh, oh, I ended up down a Wikipedia rabbit hole looking that up because I couldn't remember. I knew yeah. there was a difference. It was like short, it
0: short billion and long billion or something like yes, that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> uh,
1: Boy, are we getting off topic. Yeah. So I'm thinking it's, it's the AI and stuff. Uh, and I thought that'd be quite interesting that it kind of coer- coerced people, maybe as a higher had to find out it was that actually the villain was a computer. And and you get to that's just this scenery chewing, frothing Ed, <laughs> Ed Begley, and I. And I oh, I've never seen Ed Begley much that I can recall, other than he's really, really good as the horrible racist guy in 12 Angry Men hmm. because there's nothing in 12 Angry Men that isn't really really good yes. but that's the only time I can recall seeing him and in this good lord yeah not a bit of scenery left on truth he's a terrible actor Um, and it sort of fits the frothing at the brain Carter who's in terms of how much he hates communists thinks McCarthy's a lightweight yeah an I, amateur, a beginner even.
0: <laughs> I don't know if it's 100% fair to say that he's, that he's a bad actor because I've not seen enough of him to really know, but I think this was yeah, clearly I, I, I a, a very deliberate choice to go overboard with that character because th- it, it, it stands out so much in relation to everything else that came before it that yes, it, it, exactly. it, it's got to be a deliberate choice. I don't think it was a good choice, but <laughs> no, it was definitely no. a choice.
1: Yeah, um, that's fair. But I did have that thought of my mind because, I say, I'm only familiar with him in 12 Angry Men that mm-hmm. I can recall. And he's excellent in that,
0: but I mean between um, that and the way that some of his like his rallies get shot the same way that um, you would have like Vader addressing a crowd of stormtroopers towards the end of it. you know what I mean is uh, they're clearly kind of hamming up that kind of bombastic elements of it towards the end and as i say I, I don't think it works, but I can at least see what they were going for, but uh, well, that 's the
1: thing is it's not even the way that he's a Nazi and he's portrayed as a Nazi I think it's yes. really weird because the the first time you see him and um, with like the burning torches and stuff behind them, or the like the bowls of flames, it's very yeah. kind of. I mean, I don't know that there were flames at the Nuremberg Rally, but it's that immediately it yeah, yeah, you yeah. have that feel. And um, it, it's not like I am interpreting this as being like a Nazi. No, they're saying he's a Nazi because the logo of his company is <laughs> yes. pretty much nigh on identical to the Nazi Reichsadler. Yes, which is that sort of very stylized kind of eagle with the head to the right and the, the swastika and a circle onto its feet. Mm-hmm. The logo of his company is almost identical to that. And the, the shorter logo, like the, the, the symbol is halfway between the SS, double S's of the SS, and a swastika. Yeah, It's not subtle. No. They're saying he's a Nazi. Yes. But that is. doesn't go anywhere. That's actually irrelevant to what happens, given uh, that the <laughs> important thing is that he's a frothing at the mouth anti-communist capitalist
0: yeah and there's got to be a message in there somewhere between that between his bombast and plans and the absolute ease in which his plans are swatted aside by the Russians when it actually comes to it there's got to be something some message in there I'm not quite getting it myself I don't think it was particularly successful in how it, it portrays that to you but the way that he is just dismissed by, by the Soviet apparatus at the end um, there's got to be something in there that's uh, there's some sort of message from uh, from Russell or, or the script but I'm not quite sure what it is, and I'm not. I don't particularly care to go back and try and figure out what it is either. It's it's a it's, uh, it's it's the better film than I remember, but I still would never choose to watch this over at chris File or uh, Funeral in Berlin again. It,
1: I say it really is a film of two halves to me I, the first film, the first half really intrigued me, and I'm liking it. And then the second half, what? Yeah, I mean, can, can you say Scott, it must have been a choice, but it was a crazy, crazy choice.
0: Yeah. I mean, I suppose Um, Ken Russell's, there's no shortage of crazy choices among Ken Russell's career from the limited amount of things that I've seen, but uh, uh, maybe we have to to revisit that. But yes, uh, in terms of this film in particular, I (laughs) don't think it works, no.
1: (laughs) No. He's just like he's been airdropped in from a different film entirely. (laughs) Yes. Had he done a role like that as the bad guy in something like an Austin Powers type film, it probably would have fitted. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: But the Epic Press file and stuff, the Harry Palmer stuff, is quite straight.
2: Yeah,
1: I mean, there's humour. Michael Caine cracks wise and stuff, but it is a serious type of film, at least in terms of like an action spy flick. Yeah, you know, it's not a comedy. It's not a parody. Mm -hmm. The only other thing that had this this film had me wondering about though was: did shops used to have foot X-ray machines? (laughs) That seemed weird. Was that a thing? I guess it must
0: have been. I've not been in Clark's in a long time, so (laughs) maybe they still do.
1: (laughs) Who can say? Um, So I suspect that most people um, have no idea what we're talking about. The film starts off with Harry Palmer being asked to take a mysterious package to Finland and be told not to open it. So he decides, well, I could X-ray it uh, to look inside. (laughs) This all makes sense. But then to X-ray it, he walks into the, depart- the shoe department of department store, which have several machines called pedo uh, no, um, pedoscopes, which are apparently full-on X-ray machines, um, <laughs> because foot cancer was desired in the nineteen sixties. I don't get what was going on there. Yes, very strange. But uh, that, that really started me of like, why is that? Was that a thing? Why was that a thing? That can't be the thing. Was that a thing? They would have put it in this if it was a thing. Surely that's a hell of a thing to investigate and to invent. Because if they needed to invent it, they could have just gone to hospital. So my mind was racing at that point. Like, what is going on? <laughs> my mind wasn't racing as much in other, as it was in other films, though, for very yeah, different so it,
0: reasons. By no means the strangest thing we'll cover today. But uh, yes, perhaps final word in this should, will come from the. Uh, Exploding Helicopter podcast that's uh, at Chopper Firewall on Twitter after establishing the Harry Potter f- Harry Potter films <laughs>
1: after establishing That would be a different spy film
0: Yes very much he's up to no good um, after establishing the Harry Palmer films as the anti-bond with their gritty verisimilitude, Billion Dollar Brain makes the baffling attempt to outdo the extravagance of the 007 series stylish fun but makes absolutely no sense in terms of the franchise's prior trajectory um, yes it, it really does as, as you say it's like it turns into a different film halfway through and it's very strange.
1: It's... Yeah, that second half <laughs> of the bed, basically. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you ready for the highlights of the night?
0: <laughs> yes. In many ways, we kind of buried the lead on this podcast. I, I believe when we were sort of throwing ideas about for this, like, I-, I stumbled across this as uh, in a web search, and well... It kind of demanded their attention. <laughs> uh, so uh, without further ado, Operation Kid Brother or OK Connery or one of a number of other titles. Or
1: Operation Double O seven or <laughs> all sorts of right on the name yes. um title on the nose the names rather. Um Yes, now I was supposed to do an introduction for this and I thought about it and a large part of the conversation came to us, I'm not quite sure how to. Um <laughs> So a lot of the joy of this film will become simply talking about it rather than trying to introduce it, but I will try to tell you a little bit first before we get into, down into the nitty-gritty of just how mental this film is. Now, for aficionados of terrible B-movies, um, of the sort of so-bad-they're-good type, there's quite a lot of wealth to be mined in Italy. For some reason, Italy seems to be the source of many terrible, low-budget knockoffs of American-style films. Yes, and if you're familiar with, for instance, Red Letter, Red Letter, Red Letter, Red yes, they're they're elite <laughs> hack source. Um Red Letter Media's Best of the Worst series—you uh, will not be surprised to find a disproportionate um, number of Italian. Disproportionate yes, number of <laughs> Italian films have popped up in there. They covered one that we, in fact, have covered too, which was Zombie 3, when we did our zombie episode not so long ago. That was an Italian film as well, with its strange idea that somehow the Philippines could pass for Southern California, but okay. Uh, Self-propelling heads. (laughs) Yes. It's that sort of level of production value and nonsense that uh, marks out a lot of them, (laughs) which is weird because some of the greatest films of all time have also come from Italy. It's not like they don't know how to make good films in that country, you know? <laughs> so, it is yet another Italian film we come to hear. This is a weird film. So, again, this is only five years after Doctor No came out and as I said with Murderer's Show, it seems like a a subgenre of Bond parodies and rip-offs seem to spring up from nowhere quite, quite quickly. This is very much of the... Rip off version. Oh yes. And it's honestly hard to understand how this came about. Because this is a film. And there's maybe a bit of a clue in the name OK Connery. <laughs> but this is a film that stars Lois Maxwell, who was Miss Money Penny in a lot of the Bond films if you recall. Bernard Lee, who's M in the Eleven Bond Films, <laughs> Adolfo Cellic who was Largo in Thunderball, a Bond film. Daniela Bianchi, who was a Bond girl in From Russia With Love. I'm sensing a um, theme here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but which Connery have they found? <laughs> and yes, also a car, somebody who played a small role in You Only Live Twice, a Bond film. Mm. Yeah. They've taken all of these people, um, cast them in roles largely similar to the roles they played in the Eon Productions official Bond films. Mm. How these people kept their jobs with Eon Films is honestly beyond <laughs> me because it's quite clearly just a straight up rip off in every way possible. And then what they've done is they've gone, well, Sean Conway's quite famous, very possibly going to be picky, well out with our budget anyway, <laughs> but his brother, the plasterer, he's probably <laughs> available, right?
0: <laughs> That'll work. I can't see any yeah. problems with this. Just get it's, the plasterer and do it.
1: <laughs> so, so. Neil Connery, who was at the time working as a plasterer, is recruited. And, I mean, that may be ridiculous enough there's mention in the film made to him looking like his brother, but I honestly don't think he looks like Sean Connery at all. No. But actually, nowadays he does, weirdly enough. Mm-hmm. Current Neil Connery does, but Neil Connery I don't think he does. Um,
0: they even seem to make that point at one point. Someone's suggesting he should shave off his beard so he'd look a bit more like his brother. And so he goes, yeah, no, no, just, I can't I'm do very, that because that's too obvious.
1: I'm, also, I'm <laughs> also very attached to my beard. Um, but yes, is, it's not just that they decided. Well, what we should do is cast... Neil Connery <laughs> in this Bond knockoff they kind of make that the point of the whole film yes, they've cast <laughs> him as James Bond's brother <laughs> Yes, he, hence the other name for the film um, as well O.K. Connery in Operation Kid Brother and I'm thinking okay, I know the name but they're not going to be that on the nose about it <laughs> oh yes, oh yes they are and repeatedly <laughs> this film, oh my god it's got this film um, I mean to to quote our friend Tengushi on Twitter when I was talking about this with him a couple of days ago, is glorious fecking enigma. <laughs> and how and what? Well, I know how. Cheap cash in, right? Or why, rather. But but, but how and how are these people? and why, Oh, no. <laughs> so am I, I am burying my face on my hands because this film is the worst of things. <laughs> also, happily, however, it is the best of things. It is the best of things. It is the worst of things. It is mostly the worst of things It's also mostly the best of things because it's one of the Worst, best, most enjoyable and most awful things I've watched in a good long time (laughs) It's baffling and wonderful and terrible and awesome Uh, (laughs) Sorry, I I haven't even got to the plot yet because, well, the plot But I can't get over just how on the nose this film is about the whole Kid Brother thing
0: Look, if you managed to find a plot in here I applaud your efforts, I couldn't (laughs) couldn't um, find one
1: well, the plot is your sort of bog-standard um, Bond thing. Uh, evil group called Thanatos, named after the Greek personification of death, uh, your typical Spectre analogue, have want to create some sort of microwave machine <laughs> to render all metal-based mechanisms on a planet Well, useless, basically. Mm. That's probably the most standard thing about this film, is your typical megalomaniacal, evil organisation type plot. Mm. They are apparently going to do this, and they make consistent reference to this, by stealing an atomic nucleus. (laughs) Which uh, just broke my mind every time they said that. They want to steal an atomic nucleus. They want to steal an atomic... Every single thing in existence that is an atom has an atomic nucleus. So that's most things in existence that are neutrinos. Not just protons. That,
0: but they need to steal these atomic nucleuses and then get blind people in Marrakesh
1: to weave them together or something? I don't quite yes, understand. they the, the weaving magic um, carpets made of atomic nuclei, which are probably made you just by all, all atoms having atomic nuclei because that's what everything. Um, so it could <laughs> just be some sand. Um, Or some air. Um, And also, blind people um, navigate by banging a stick randomly near their foot. That's what they use sticks for.
0: It's a form of really shitty sonar. That's how it works, yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, we're all over the place here because this film's all over the place. Um, So that's the plot. Uh, And the idea is that. um, So the film starts with the most ludicrously over the top bombing of a secret agent. a remote-controlled car for some reason. Um, <laughs> the most elaborate over-the-top and unnecessary way to murder someone, the secret agent working for MI5, MI6, or whatever it actually is in this uh, film, I think they meant to be MI6, same as Bond. Uh, they kill him. They're then going to attack um, this agent's girlfriend who he has somehow used as some sort of human USB stick and stored information <laughs> inside of her. <laughs>
0: Um, Inside well, her brain, we should say, in a, in a, in a kind of uh, more. Oh, yeah, yes. We're, we're not, not talking
1: anything sexual or anything like that, no. <laughs> yes. It's just more of a Johnny mnemonic way, really.
0: She's not tattooed um, a message on her kidneys or anything like
1: that. But <laughs> well,
0: she wouldn't put it no. past the film, to be honest. but
1: No, we're not making it, like, talking about inserting USB sticks or anything, no. We're not making um, <laughs> that sort of double entendre or anything, though. No. Yes, so she's currently under the care, this girlfriend, she's currently under the care of Dr. Neil Connery. In the film, Neil Connery plays Dr. Neil Connery, (laughs) who is the brother of a double O agent called Connery.
0: They mentioned it several (laughs) times.
1: They mentioned this several times, but what yeah. sets Dr. Neil Connery apart from his brother, the spy Connery, double O, <laughs> and that, that's the one bit where they don't go full way because they knew they would get sued, they just call <laughs> him double O something and then it's cut off, the conversation's cut off. Is a Scottish surgeon, a plastic surgeon, who, despite being a Scottish plastic surgeon and having apparently come from Edinburgh, but apparently. Also, doesn't come from Edward. Has returned to. Return to uh, they called me in from Edward. They say at the start of the conversation. At the end of that sequence, I've got to return to Columbia University, <laughs> which is in New York City. But okay, uh, I presume this that is,
0: that has got to be a way to get around the fact that for whatever reason they, when they did the dubbing for this they didn't bring neil connery back in and they got an american guy to dub him so he's wandering yes. around with an american accent despite your only selling point for this film being the relationship between neil connery and sean connery you've done your best to disguise the one thing that is most recognizable about sean connery what are you doing film <laughs> what what is exactly. going on
1: <laughs> I know it's gloriously awful. It's so inept, Um, but that's exactly where I'm going, Scott. So it was like they they brought me in from Edinburgh. Why do you sound like an American? And then they make several references to being Scottish. He's a Scottish brother. At one point, he's in the middle of what's again meant to be Monaco. (laughs) <laughs> in Highland dress in an archery competition in Monaco because he's Scottish despite being an American clearly an American with an American voice because Americans have an American voice he's he an American, he's an American, what are you doing? Oh, so I'm getting loud and shrill because this film has broken my brain but in kind of a glorious way that I, I appreciate because it's so, I've never seen anything like this I don't think uh, yeah it's uh, so they bring him in but he's like, he's treating I've got so lost here, but it's, oh, so I, I, I just we need to talk about everything, Scott. So it's wonderful. He's treating this girlfriend, the human US, walking USB stick, who doesn't know she has this information. He is somehow compelled to do it because apparently the government can do that. <laughs> they can make you be a spy. Yes. Especially even when you, you actually you're employed in the United States not Britain. It's like you've not even your residence in the UK anymore but okay at least if this film's problems the power, the, the power of the Queen
0: compels you The power of the Queen compels you The power of the Queen compels you. Okay I'm a spy <laughs> That's basically how it
1: went <laughs> Yeah um, So they draft him in um, unwillingly to go undercover to investigate um, Thanatos Thanatos, the great organisation that wants to, as we say, steal an atomic nucleus, you just kind of stick the word atomic in and then think, think that means some sort of nuclear weapon or something. That's not how that works. But they're not well organised, or at least they're not very secretive anyway, because, and it's such a rip off perspective specter too, because the head of the organisation is called Alpha, instead of um, what number one Blofeld is, isn't he? Yeah. Um, There's a, I mean, everything's a reference because there's a character called Lottie something. It's clearly a reference to Lottie Lenya, Hmm. um, who played Rosa Klebb in the Bond films. And Adolfo Cellis, Mr. Thayer, is beta. And it's like, yeah, okay. Admittedly, there's a limited number of ways to do that, but still. And I'm honestly surprised there wasn't a white cat Yes, yes. i genuinely surprised by that. It's the only thing they didn't straight up copy. Yeah, their plan is called Operation Blackmail. <laughs> as I say, this film doesn't know how to not be on the nose. Operation Evil Plan. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, they bring him in to go undercover. As I say, at one point, as a blind man working in a factory in Morocco who was making nuclear carpets. <laughs> Now, I'm, I'm,
0: you, might, you might think, Drew, that a plastic surgeon would not have the tools necessary for the covert operation, but it turns out that Neil Connery does, because Dr Neil Connery, not only is he an expert plastic surgeon, of course, he's, he, he's an expert lip reader who, who, I who barely um, needs line of sight to actually understand people across the room, and of course... I don't know what- Olympic level hypnotist <laughs> Olympic level hypnotist Who can hypnotise anyone Simply by folding his hands together And staring at them gently And thus comp- compelling them Into a, a world of doing Whatever the hell he likes And That would seem to be More a trope that you'd put Towards the, the evil guys Rather than the good guys You know Mind control tends not to be One of the Hero Kind of Hero's traits You know um, Just One of the many ways In fiction's films Very strange
1: <laughs> So yeah, he he he's a plastic surgeon who's a lip reader and a hypnotist too all of which will come into play make no mistake about this all of these will be incredibly important
0: And it's good that he knows an archery team because he does need to assault a castle at the end and what better, what better than an archery team on horseback well, Handy <laughs> <knew> that Yes
1: <laughs> Oh this film Oh it's a wonderful, wonderful thing It's a gift Um <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, he's starting to explore um, these things, um, which takes him from Monaco to Malaga, um, somewhere else. Uh, this is an Italian film. I'm thinking it's a lot of it is shot in Italy, although I think some of it was actually shot near Malaga. Mm-hmm. But there's not much sense of place in this film because there's a bit where some United States military police officers are driving along a road. <laughs> And yes. for a good twenty minutes, um, I'm thinking, well, "Why are they in Spain?" <laughs> and I can only assume they weren't in Spain; they were in the United States. But it's really not obvious. Um, yeah. But this is how somehow I think that's something to do with how they steal this atomic nucleus.
0: Yes, by by the most obvious way possible. I mean, I don't think yes, you could get um, a more direct plan.
1: Yeah. So uh, the plan here, right, is that for some reason in what is presumably the United States. Because there are, it's a military, inst- oh, it's a nuclear fuel, nuclear power station or something, guarded by US military police, but the a bunch of women appear dressed as flamenco dancers, but they get onto a bus which says something about, well, almost like flamenco dancers, they're more like dancehall dancers from the Old West, I guess it's what they're meant to be, because there's an Old West logo on the bus. But yeah, they, so all of these women's st- in the middle of the desert, this is. Um, mm. This is why I was like, "This looks like Malaga." Why? Is <coughs> Sorry, it's, it's broken my brain. It really has. A, I can barely string a sentence together because it's so weird. Um, <laughs> these women, and then step into the middle of the road to stop the military jeep full of MPs, and there's a sort of military bus truck behind them. I guess it's regular soldiers in it. Hmm. And the MPs go, "Well, all these women in the road." That seems totally legit and natural. Let's just go with them, I guess. Um, I
0: presumed um, they were trying to sort of flag them down to... because they were. Pre- I think they were pretending that their bus had broken down, and they were trying I to guess get so, help. But it's, but it's not particularly clear either the yeah, location or anything that was
1: going on in that particular yeah, scene. So this, I think, leads to them finding new nuclear carpet making material or, or that was whatever. Lot.
0: They, they found the nuclear, th- they found the atomic threads and uh, <laughs> now could yes. make the um, atomic carpet <laughs> that um, would then go inside Ned's atomic dustbin. Which
1: is, <laughs> yes. Um, the, so the action then moves to Morocco, where, as we mentioned <laughs> because the, our thoughts and our description of the film is, is all over the place as the film is, so <laughs> blame it, not us. Neil Connery... <laughs> Because they keep mentioning him being Connery too uh, <laughs> It's not even once It's so on the nose The, the film ends with him saying you were almost as good as your brother yeah. Shh. Sorry I, I need to make another sec I want to mention this before I forget because As if all of that wasn't on the nose enough Scott Did you notice the bit where um, One of the characters says to, I think to Neil Connery um, You read too many novels by Fleming <laughs> Yes <laughs> Talk about wearing your influence on your sleeve <laughs> uh, So as yes, He goes to Morocco Where some terrible acting happens Because he tries telling the blind man Who's in the special room Where um, he's working on the nuclear carpets like he's working with nuclear material What? You're working with nuclear material What? You're working with nuclear material And he says As quick as I was about to say it Ah <laughs> oh, quick they're, they're trying to poison us This must make be have the source Let's get out of here Let's go Ah uh, it's so bad <laughs> It's the worst but also the best, Scott I don't think I've been this entertained by a film in the ages Yeah, I'm, I'm honestly it's not much of an exaggeration How quickly I said largely what they say and that it's Some terrible activity a, Well, that take was fine, let's go with that then
0: <laughs> If anything, you're substantially more coherent Because I had to listen to that about four times If you work out what the hell it's going to be
1: Yeah, um, and then he is kidnapped by Adolfo Celli and forced to do plastic surgery on the henchman who, from the beginning, made me think very strongly of Stanley Baxter and I could not get that thought out of my head. So Stanley Baxter, Mr Majika, henchman, he's to perform surgery on him because he's supposed to be taking the place of Alpha because Beta, Mr Thea, Adolfo Celli, definitely not Largo, wants to... (laughs) And take over Thanatos, and then he hypnotizes him to jump through a window in a scene which made me snort with laughter because it was so ridiculous. Um, but you knew the hypnotism was going to come back into it, and then God, I can't even remember how the film ends now. I've just my thoughts are all over the place. Uh, so, but still, he manages to trick Alpha and kill him. He becomes the boss, and then, well, uh, how does uh, it end, Scott? I actually can't remember.
0: Well, at some point, Adolfo uh having created the nuclear carpet or whatever the hell it was, um, they've got their weapon working, so they go off to some oh, facility yes. where they start... Switzerland or somewhere, isn't yeah, it? Where they put on their fabulous red pleather um, <laughs> jumpsuits that look a bit like a thriller video and he's... I bet. I bet. <laughs> he's just a little bit like it. Shemone. and then And... Um, some stuff happens, and I'm not quite sure how. It ended. <laughs> to be honest, i would kind of, i would kind of lost uh, the the will to think at that point. Um, there's, um, there's, lots of archers, and then some, oh yes, yes, it's in uh, the castle. So the 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 the, ca- the archery team have to go up on horseback to provide a distraction <laughs> for Bonds, while he sneaks in the back door and blows it up somehow by the power of plastic surgery. I can't quite remember how, but yes. and, and lip
1: breathing, yes, somehow. Uh, <laughs> He hypnotises the wall after reading the lips to know what's going on and blows it up. then he has a face-off with definitely not Largo, um, where Largo thinks he's got the better of Bond, but he's only shot him in the arm, whereas Bond has fired an arrow into his heart and he is dead now. Um, And... Um, my brain has also died because it's just it, it cannot take it process any more of this which is why I don't remember the end very well other than the bit where he manages to hypnotise Bernard Lee by putting his fingers together and staring at him intently for three and a half seconds yes <laughs> that's um, how it works yeah uh, uh um
0: Ah. Yeah, I did not understand why any single thing in this film was happening, and that's normally a bad thing. <laughs> but I think it, it works to the strengths of Operation Kid Brother, which doesn't have a lot of them. So it's good that it's got one one suit to keep hammering on. That, <laughs> that being the, the
1: the desperate desperate attempts to link it to Double Seven, and I mean. And not <laughs> subtle is not a word in this um these filmmakers' vocabulary, Scott. Yeah.
0: Um
1: subtle is something they actively reel against apparently if they were to be aware of the word at all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean I'm sure at some point in the past we've we've used the term stunt casting. I mean this is just stunt casting as the entire basis of a film. And, and the
1: entire point, I
0: think. It's super strange. I mean, it, it, it's just such an obvious, I mean, I, presumably it's just an attempt at a, a kind of cheap cash-in. Uh, let's, let's knock something out as quickly as they can. And uh, Oh, there's no doubt that's what it is.
1: Bond's really this point. Yeah. 67, um, that's round about the time of like, You Only Live Twice, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's, Bond's get properly big every year. Bond was bigger than the year before at that point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a cheap cash in. It's just that how they've done it and who they got to do it is the incredible thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you could do the cheap cash in in a very obvious way. Um, this really isn't that way. And uh, I mean, everything new to the casting is there's, there's such a deliberate deliberateness to it that it's just so brazen that you can't help but be charmed by it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but the script is, I just. I don't understand how they got this script together. I mean, I've seen a fair few incomprehensible Italian films, but this this is worse than all of them. It's like you know when you're you're training like machine learning or artificial intelligence, and you, they just read like a thousand news articles, then start trying to bake their own ones, synthesise something out of that. It's like that for a script. It's like yeah, it, it just it's, it's a it, fever dream. Yeah, it, it's sort of. If you looked at it from far enough away, it, it kind of looks like a Bond script. It, it kind of does the same sort of things but it it doesn't make any sense
1: it hits the major beats of a bond film but without any of those without any of those being connected in any real (laughs) way yes i know i in the right order with the right people um yeah because by that even by that point bond had already got formulaic but um so it's like it's like they they understand what a Bond film is But mm-hmm. not how it's put together Yes <laughs> It's like They're trying to infer a sausage From the list of ingredients <laughs> <laughs> Yes Without really understanding The, the thing as a whole Yes It's Ah I mean It's awful It's also brilliant And Awful And brilliant and- <laughs> I'm really glad you found this because <laughs> I don't think I've talked this enthusiastically about any film in this podcast ever um, because I'm just so baffled. And again, I'll mention, I, I don't understand how these people got employed by Eon Productions again. Um, yeah. you know, they were quite litigious, even from the beginning. Um, yeah. And there was like the acrimonious fallouts between Harry Saltzman and Cummy Broccoli. Mm-hmm. And there was the, then they had all the lawsuits like Wolf Mankovich and stuff that ended up making Never See Never Again and they were in court all the time. Mm-hmm. How did this one get through and how did they not just like say to the people? Oh, you've burned the bridges now. Well, what do you use M again, Bernard Lee? Yeah, I, I, really
0: don't know. I, I couldn't really find any particular evidence of how successful this was. I mean, it's, it's almost like this was some made-for-TV um, Italian thing that sort of snuck out somewhere and has kind of lingered on in the memory of people. But I mean, it's, it's not all that well remembered because if, if you look at the, uh, I mean, even the Wikipedia page, which is normally the home of the needlessly detailed recap for everything, and there's barely anything on it about this film uh, which probably is what it deserves to be fair but um, and I, uh, it's, it just seemed to have gone down a memory hole it took a bit of tracking down and
1: um, yeah, it's
0: so t- strange I mean all I can assume is this came out like pretty much entirely in Italy and it didn't really get anywhere else. so Ian maybe just gave it a pass but it's it's weird that something is so litigious. I mean, seemingly need, needfully litigious because there was so many kind of claims on that uh, that IP that they needed to kind of keep fighting it all the time. But that they did nothing about something as blatant as this is really it's, baffling
1: It's not like I don't believe there's a, any way they wouldn't have been aware of it because the people that are in it absolutely But, like, yeah. some, but it's not like it was completely unknown or anything because it was reviewed. At the time, by right. the New York Times, by Bosley Crowther in the New York Times, <laughs> and also by Variety.
0: Um, yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't completely anonymous at the time. Okay, yeah, m- right, right.
1: Yeah, so like it, it's Variety, it's the trades, you mm-hmm. know, of of that industry. copy Broccoli, that must have known about it. Just something like it's like snuck st- uh, stuck under the radar for Bernard Lee and Lois Maxwell and yeah. stuff. Um,
0: Unless it was considered so embarrassingly bad they didn't want to even give it the the oxygen of publicity because I can't imagine this was successful uh, because it's really bad. And it's only fun when you can dissect it in a sort of vaguely alcohol-fueled discussion with friends. But I I don't think... If you sat down and watched the film in isolation, uh, you would really get all that much from it. But just knowing that there's something... To, to actually discuss with people. It's it's such a strange curiosity that, that it kind of makes it fun.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely.
0: But I mean if you judged by its own quality in and of itself, I mean, it's it's awful. Um <laughs> I don't, uh, but then again, I, I thought it was too old to enjoy films that were awful, just as a sort of, you know, the so-bad-it's-good sort of thing. But this this really kind of knocks it up a level. So I'm glad it's kind of rekindled that. I, could, I can now enjoy awful films again. It's just, just just and how bad and how baffling they are. Yes.
1: I honestly wish that I had lasted one film longer, um, <laughs> yes. which we'll, we'll quickly get to. But um, yes, I had that thing too. I mm. thought I'd lost that ability to ironically enjoy stuff. But, um, yeah, So it just... I'm on the Wikipedia page just now, Scott, just to see what if there was. There really isn't much information, is there? No, um, no. But it's the, the last line in this quite is they're talking about the reception. As a James Bond ripoff, the reaction to the film is mixed. Ben Child from the Guardian called it one of the worst movies made for the genre. In contrast, Andy Roberts from the Daily Telegraph and Tom Cole for Radio Times considered it to be one of the best. What? Here, but, but here's the thing. They're both right. <laughs> well, they're, all three of them are right <laughs> and wrong at the same time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's largely how I felt in all of that film when I was pissing myself <laughs> laughing, actually. But it's um, I
0: mean, Yes. Suffice to say, Neil Connery has returned to his career as a plasterer. <laughs> and I think we're all happier for that in the grand scheme of things.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I think Sean Connery used to be like a milkman or a yeah, postman or something at some point, like before he made it big. Um I just started a small job. So, but but there's a reason he didn't have to return to that. Yes, <laughs> not so much for his brother, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> I, fe- I feel I uh, feel there's so much more to say about this film, but I think we've probably said all we need to for it.
1: <laughs> honestly, though, I, I just I think that people ought to track this down because it's again. I'm going to go back to um, Tenko. She's and is glorious fecking enigma. Yes. Uh, I, I have cleaned the language up a little there, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. But, uh, it is... It's baffling, but in a properly entertaining way. Yeah. Like, why, how, why, what, why, how, who, what, why, where, when? <laughs> yes, I, I am thoroughly, thoroughly grateful that you discovered this and yes. making up your list for this episode, Scott, because I've not had as much fun with the <laughs> film in quite some time. Yes, uh,
0: despite it being dreadful, um, everyone oh you yeah, should harmful. watch it. Um, you can't deny if, that it's
1: an awful film, but it's like properly entertainingly awful. If,
0: if you're listening and you can't get a hold of it, hit me up on Twitter. I'll I'll, I'll sort you out. But um,
1: <laughs> yes, this nudge nudge wink wink.
0: I might, I might fall off the back of the internet somewhere near you, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it it's certainly a thing that I watched and, <laughs> and spoke about for what an hour. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I don't know, and I think none of us really know about Operation Good Brother. uh, um, Let's let's all just not know together and uh, join the harmonious things. What? What? Why is there ceiling guns? (laughs) Why? Oh, I forgot about ceiling guns. Why am I getting most invested in the power struggles of the evil organization? I don't surely this should be the other way around. Surely shouldn't I be more invested in more invested in the hero than Largo? I don't uh, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> it was an experience and I'm not sure we're, we're any better or worse for it, but we're certainly changed by it. And uh no, nothing will be the same going forward. So that's yeah. that's a thing, and how often can you say that about films yeah. in a so, stupid way? <laughs>
1: Yeah, every time I I stop for a moment to think that something else occurs to me too. This is another film that's an absolute crime against fashion. At some point, some woman's wearing a hat that appears to be the nest of a tinsel flamingo. (laughs) Um, Because
0: curiously, was the name of my 80s synth band? (laughs)
1: Um, And she also, I mean, I don't don't trying to make fun of people's names or anything, but there were certain names that... are more likely to be found in films whatever than others um, because they sound sexy or something and for yeah. the same, are more appealing and cool cooler, whatever it is yeah. and those are fashions that change of course, but there's um, there are some names that also you don't tend to get for the same reason <laughs> for example in this case, the glamorous evil woman is yeah. called Mildred <laughs> that's <laughs> not a glamorous name and if your name's Mildred fair enough but come on and it's not like that's a name
0: that's recently gone out of fashion <laughs> I
1: like not that. Name out of fashion in the 1890s <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes
0: I'm, I'm not it's sure we've reached thing. the conclusion here but I don't think the film does either so I think that's quite fitting
1: <laughs> I think the conclusion is I need more beer
0: Yes, so I think we will move from not necessarily the sublime to the ridiculous, but perhaps from the ridiculously sublime to the just plain ridiculous. Uh, with the, uh, "Never Too Young to Die," uh, Drew, what's all that about then?
1: Yes, well, in this unexpected critique of poor city planning and incompetent civil engineers, <laughs> <laughs> that'll make sense. In the moment. <laughs> a kiss frontman Gene Simmons plays Velvet Ron Ragnar the hermaphrodite terrorist leader of a Mad Max-like post-apocalyptic biker gang.
0: Yes, you heard all that right.
1: <laughs> yes. Whom we first see murdering a woman who has refused to give up the location of the computer desk, key stroke she requires. This person does not know what a hermaphrodite, this <laughs> scriptwriter does not know what a hermaphrodite is, seems to think that's somehow unusual and or kinky and that's enough, but we'll get to the criticisms later. <laughs> um, <laughs> The disc he or she requires in order to contaminate a city's water supply with radioactive waste. So <laughs> now let's get this out of the way now, I guess. <laughs> no. Why water and radioactive waste are on connected circuits is never addressed.
0: Why the radioactive waste is being plumbed directly into a dam, because that's not how dams work. Never, <laughs> or radioactive
1: waste, for that matter. <laughs> yes.
0: Never something that's fully addressed by the film. But there's many things that's not fully addressed by this film.
1: So. <laughs> yes. so, suffice to say, the engineers and the planners are the two villains here. Well, you know, if you don't count the scriptwriters, director and producers. <laughs> Meanwhile, in a different film entirely, <laughs> 23-year-old high school student and gymnastic champion Lance Stargrove, John Stamos, lives in 1980s California with his 34-year-old roommate Lance. There's
0: so much to unpack in all of that and none of it's worth doing. <laughs>
1: um, and this 34-year-old roommate, and played by Peter Kwong, is an inventor of gadgets. For some reason. <laughs> Someone's, everyone's got to yes. have a hobby, I guess. Um, Lance is... I'm oh, sorry, I've put that um, his roommate's called Lance. He's called Lance. He doesn't have a roommate with the same name. Cliff. Yeah. This is important to information, people. His roommate is Cliff. Cliff, the 34-year-old roommate. And I'm not exaggerating. These are the actual names, actual ages I checked. <laughs> not just how they look. The ages they actually are. Lance is in a bad mood because his father hasn't turned up for parents' day despite having invented the fact that his father would be turning up off for parents' day um, <laughs> because he was annoyed with his roommate and or teacher. Um, yes. Not that attending would have been an option as his father, Drew Stargrove, George Lasonby, is infiltrating Velvet Von Ragnar's base. As an aside, my first name is rare enough in movies, but when it finally turns <laughs> up as the name of a secret agent, it's this walking tree that gets it. Sick. Stargrove Sr. is portrayed by a member of his team, two Gene Simmons in a terrible ginger wig and unconvincing ginger beard that we're supposed to not know as Gene Simmons and a <laughs> terrible ginger wig and unconvincing ginger weird beard, despite clearly being Gene Simmons and a terrible ginger wig and unconvincing ginger beard. Before being killed by Gene Simmons um, as Ragnar in his goth-stroke glam singer persona. Another aside, there may be more of these... Um, <laughs> There's a good chance Carruthers is an Ian Fleming or Bond reference and another name ruined by its association with this turd of a movie. <laughs> um, by that I mean that if you've seen any of the any f- interviews with Ian Fleming about creating James Bond's name and why he's called James Bond, it's reasonably well known that he took the name from a book of Birds of the Caribbean written by somebody called James Bond but he also said like it had the name of my spy had to be kind of like an ordinary everyday name it couldn't have been something like Peregrine Carruthers Um, (laughs) and I have a feeling that Carruthers here is a reference to that but anyway I I digress so much on this because I as I've said before I said I secretly hate Scott clearly it's not so much a secret anymore because I keep doing these things to make the edit a nightmare for him okay (laughs) Soul Stegen. Yes. After the funeral, Lance discovers he has inherited a hitherto unknown, unknown to him farm. So he sets off to check it out. There he finds Vanity's Donja, possibly another Bond reference because it sounds so like Danjak, the Bond production company. Yeah. Um, possibly a name meant to sound like danger if you pronounce it as a French person. <laughs> Donja. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or possibly, oh, nay uh, almost. <laughs>
0: it's a bit of a stretch. The, it's a stretch but all of it.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> possibly, may almost certainly something I thought too much about. <laughs> but honestly, this <laughs> fellow invites thinking about pretty much anything else. Um, uh, in Vanity happens to be an associate of his father. Lance encounters Donja, Donja, Danja, Donja, at his house in the middle of a fight with members of the Mad Max gang with automatic weapons and boxes of grenades some of which explode and destroy his barn and seems almost comically unfazed and incurious proving that no one involved thought much about this film so neither should you please disregard me doing so for I am a lost cause and quite quite incapable of not thinking about these things but I'm quite happy to do it for you Um, It's the sacrifices we make for you,
0: the listener. That's what makes this um, podcast an invaluable public service.
1: We are selfless public servants (laughs) here for the greater good. Lance follows Danja Donja Danger in glaringly inappropriate dress for the destination she goes to, into a dive bar in the post-apocalyptic parallel universe in which this film also takes place. (laughs) where he encounters Velvet and gets embroiled in the action and becomes the hero who must stop Velvet and his scientist, Riley, Robert England, here seen playing Kenny Everett, as Scott observed, (laughs) from enacting their plan of embarrassing the engineers and their terrible designs. Sadly amongst this selection, this film is the only one with no redeeming features. I was very much hoping for a so bad it's good experience from this, a la... OK Connery or Operation Kid Brother or whatever name we're selecting for it there are so many um alas it's very much so bad I could barely concentrate on it <laughs> and while the truly awful actor that is Gene Simmons is at least having a tremendous amount of fun here he's the only one doing so yeah it, it doesn't help that he's sort of doing a version of Tim Curry's frank but son all ability and charisma <laughs> yeah now, John Stamos, I'm under the impression that he is, or was, quite famous in the USA, but I'm only aware of him in his run in ER in the 2000s. Okay. is yes, fine, I guess. Well, uh, I'm not confident of my thoughts here. <laughs> um, certainly I've seen worse performances, though he does seem oddly unaffected by having gone from high school student to mass killer in a handful <laughs> of days. Yeah. Vality is given more agency and ability in a role than typical of a 1980s B-movie role that requires an attractive, scantily clad woman. So I mm. guess that's good.
0: It's just so a she shame probably... that her uh, qualifications for this role is being attractive. Uh, <laughs> that's about it. Yeah.
1: Um, so I guess she probably comes out best here, though she is still likely better known if she is known at all, for being the lead of the group Vanity Six, whose song Nasty Girl was prominent in another and considerably better 1980s film Beverly Hills Cop. Hmm. Everybody else is either boring and perfunctory, or in the case of Velvet's Minions, over the top and cartoonish. And really, the entire thing is a waste of everyone's time, especially mine. (laughs) Yeah. Pish. (laughs) Absolutely incoherent mess.
0: Yes. Um, Unlike a previous film, which was... another incoherent mess and I, I do wonder if that film just sucked the oxygen out of this particular vector uh, because <laughs> this also is an awful film that doesn't really seem to have any idea of what it's doing or why it's doing anything that it's doing but I just, I, I didn't have the same patience I probably, I, I certainly didn't hate it as much as you did by the, the sounds of what you're saying yeah. I, I I watched this with a, a kind of polite baffledness throughout the way but I was not engaged in it the same way that I was with O.K. Connery but it shares many of the same tropes and I suspect had I watched this separately from that, it may, it may have had a bit of a uh, a warmer reception because it has a lot of the same kind of characteristics. There's no coherent tone with any of it and I don't know what they were going for. I mean, I can understand doing – most of this is sort of set up as a teen Bond adventure, which makes sense. And I can... Okay, Stamos isn't a teen, but for the standards of this sort of thing, we'll accept <laughs> that he's a teenager. Fine, okay. Um, you've got a college-age Bond doing Bond stuff. It's like an Alex Cross thing before Alex, Alex Cross was a thing.
1: Yeah, our um, young Jesus. There, that's the sort of the basic premises that it's like. Yeah. Um, he's clearly older than something like... Uh, oh, what's that Fred Frankie Munz thing? Agent Cody Banks? Yes, correct. I guess that was more of a comedy take on this idea, but the idea of a uh, like Bond son or whatever... Yeah. It's not a bad idea
0: I, I can get behind that, but then why do you change the tone so you just flip flop it between so she's like why why is your your, your bad guy a, a hermaphrodite transvestite mad max post apocalyptic cult in a non apocalyptic setting thing and none yeah, of, that's, none of that's ever explained and why is he a double agent that happens to be working for the equivalent of the NSA or whatever the, the hell they're doing with in this film well, why is that a thing what, how, do you, how do you square any of this away and I don't think anyone's thought about any of it and why is there a Mad Max gang in an otherwise normal world that doesn't make any sense and is not even referenced in the slightest it's, it's like you've, you, you've somehow in the script writing process equated Transvestite with Mad Max post apocalyptia and it doesn't make any sense,
1: and no one thought to question you about it. It's really weird. It was like somebody watched Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome and thought, Imagine Tina Turner, but mental <laughs> and the guy from Kiss. <laughs> but with
0: a, Why not? With a huge tongue threatening to lick everyone for some reason. Like, yes. Yeah, okay, that's fine, that'll work. Um, no, it doesn't. It doesn't really work. <laughs>
1: yeah. And like, what 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 would be a really scary thing what i mean i mean jaws was ridiculous he had those big metal teeth oh so what would be a good um what would be a good signature a weapon for this person how uh, about a slightly longer than normal metal fingernail oh killer <laughs> oh literally killer oh wow <laughs> that's that's it um that that's I mean, there's like, a couple of points where that weapon is used on like the carotid arteries in the neck or something and yeah. okay. That would work, because, but there's this wee, like, her The big thing on Velvet and Ragnar is that her middle finger in her right hand, his middle finger in his right I don't know. These people mm-hmm. don't understand hermaphrodite, so I don't understand how this film is supposed to work. It's also quite homophobic and transphobic, this film, and hermaphrodite-phobic, I guess. There are lots of issues, but <laughs> let's, let's just focus on the stupid just now rather than necessarily the nasty. It's
0: yes, also not progressive. <laughs>
1: This fingernail, middle finger, right hand, it's perhaps slightly shorter than your typical pen knife blade. <laughs> and it's acting like it's something as dangerous as, say, Raven's glass knives and snow crash or something. Yeah. <laughs> and it's such a big thing in the film. Somebody seems to... The woman that gets killed at the start, it seems that... I mean, it's such a thing that they chant, the finger, the finger. Yes. Um, This woman gets killed with this but it seems like she gets stabbed in the gut with it but but it's like it's an inch it's literally an inch long if that See I assumed it was some sort of
0: poison kind of thing and it isn't No, because you see later on that it's not so I don't don't really understand what's going on but there's a lot of things I don't understand in this film so it kind of of just got lost in the shuffle (laughs) but
1: but yes very strange So I think I interrupted you that I appear to have completely stopped your train of thought and mine Sorry (laughs) No,
0: no, um, I don't have a train of thought as a concern to this film. <laughs> um, there's many things I just don't understand and I don't really quite get what they were going for here. Um, I mean, tone aside to be well, even on tone, uh, there's there's really strange scenes. Like, there's that bit where um, Stamos is really awkwardly eating an apple while Vanity's attempting to seduce him through the medium of sunbathing. Um, oh, the,
1: the, I, I don't know how he doesn't go through a whole barrel of apples because it's clearly yeah, Apparently his... Um, the way this film shows that he's really sexually aroused is that he's furiously eating apples <laughs> yes. and
0: dropping them and going to get another apple and eating that and making a hash of that too and, uh, and I wouldn't mind so much if that was being played up for comic laughs and that's like okay this is what you're doing in a PG film to kind of get oh, it's a little joke for the adults or something like that but no um, it, it suddenly realises that actually it's not a PG film let's go straight to the sex scene yeah, it's like, it's- what's the point of all of this I don't, understand I don't know
1: it. what this was in this country, but in the US it was an R. You know, so it's it, <laughs> it's kind of young bond, but with a very adult rating. It's yeah. so strange.
0: Yeah, it's like it's like someone's taken a really strange treatment of a post apocalyptic hellscape and a teen bond franchise that they were trying to get off the ground and just randomly mashed them together. And this is what you've left up with with Never Too Young to die, and it just doesn't really gel particularly well and I, I, as i kind of mentioned when i started talking about this i think had i watched this under certain different circumstances had i come to this blind had i not seen the uh, episode of to, just to mention them again not that we we're influenced by them in anyway, uh, red letter media's uh, coverage of this and i think it was one of their best of the worst i forget what yeah, it, was, it was the best exactly. of the worst yeah yeah um, they, they talked about this and had i not already had the really interesting or the funniest bits of it already made fun of for my pleasure before. I <laughs> might have might have seen this in a somewhat different light, um, but yes, it it just doesn't really work in anything that it's trying to do. Um, was acrobatics ever cool? I, I I don't recall that being a thing, but that's what they're going for with the the, the kind of uh, John Stamos's character setup. Um, there's just many questions that it raises. It doesn't answer any of them, and none of them really make a lot of sense and. I didn't hate it, but I wouldn't ever recommend anyone watch it. Um, I think either listening to this podcast, hopefully, <laughs> or perhaps watching the Red Letter Media uh, episode where they cover this would give you all of the enjoyment of it without the investment of ninety minutes of watching something that's actually quite bad.
1: So, yeah, I think yeah. actually it, it pushes me a wee bit towards the two-hour mark as well. In fact, it's oh dear, um, say <laughs> like an hour forty-seven or something like that. It seems about right. It's yeah. it's not good. It's yet another chance to make fun of that ridiculous trope of high school age people being cast with b- b- people considerably older. Yeah. Although, 34 is really taking the piss. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: but at least he invented what I thought was a flamethrower, but it turned out to be a grenade launcher. So that's cool.
1: <laughs> um, apparently it was an exploding laser, um, proving that they also don't know how lasers work. <laughs> <sighs> I, it's, uh, it's just a complete mess.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I
1: don't see the point of this film. It doesn't seem. Ah, uh, no,
0: no. Um, <laughs> th- there are other films that are hard to get a hold of that are probably worth doing, like maybe "Okay, Kid Brother," "Okay, Cornflake," yeah. whatever you want to call it. We're, this we're, one,
1: this was released so on Blu-ray.
0: Yeah, I, I don't get that. I mean, um, okay, Do you uh,
1: thought that was a worthwhile investment of time and money.
0: Maybe this isn't so bad it's good, it's just so bad that it's bad.
1: Um, yeah, that's the scene. it's That's yeah. exactly how I find I was hoping for so bad it's good, but it's, it's so bad it's... well, oh, to be honest, it's more just boring. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I, I didn't hate it. Um, I sat through it and I was not offended by anything in it other than just... It's, it's just not quite dumb enough to work as a dumb movie. And it's just too weird to be taken seriously. So it, it kind of falls between a lot of stools and is basically just a film that's on the floor, sprawled out, looking for attention and I don't think we really <laughs> should be giving it any.
1: There are there are one or two moments that are just stupid enough that had the film had more of those, yeah. that maybe, just maybe, it would have made it into so bad it's good because yeah. one bit I'm thinking of in particular, um, despite the fact that from the opening scene of the film it's really obvious that um Gene Simmons was the guy.
2: Yeah.
1: Right? But there's a rev- the reveal of that later, which is I assume it's meant to be also for the audience. Um yeah. So he's this guy, as I said, Carruthers. He's in the helicopter, they're going to the dam. John Stamos is in Vanity are in the the helicopter with him. He pulls off his fake beard and his wig. Suddenly he's got full on Gene Simmons hair underneath there, um it's probably more like Gene like, sort than the wig he's wearing for the rest of the time. But underneath his sunglasses, he's got all of the elaborate eye makeup of Velvet Von Rags. Yes. <laughs> that, that, at what point did he stop to put that on? <laughs> yes. Why? Yeah. But this is just so... It's just dumb enough and just daft enough and just yeah. entertaining enough. More moments like that would have made it much more entertaining. It was like... The f-
0: <laughs> that that is exactly the note I have here. Actually, um, <laughs> I, I I just don't understand why they've given Gene Simmons of all people the the license to go full on mental on it, and no one else. It's, yes, again, it's like Gene Simmons has been dropped in from another film. His character is so outlandish and out there that. I fully agree, that if, if, well I fully think that if you went all that way with the rest of the film and just went as outlandish as you could possibly get you would have something remarkable but just because it's him as an outlier, him and his little gang of freaks and misfits for no good reason who want to mix up radiation for no particularly good reason uh, again a, a running theme is that none of these bad guys the themes are particularly well explained but I don't, I don't think that's much of a, a criticism because you don't really get a lot of that in Bond films anyway but in this one, it's particularly obscure. I don't understand anything about why he's trying to do what he's trying to do. It's not like he's got any kind of grand mastermind plan. He's just doing something that's so that Stamos has something to fight against. you know what I mean? It, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. But why, why, why he's going out to such an extreme and <laughs> none of the rest of the film is following him at all. It's like... Uh, 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 hopping a, at a very long distance behind him that's kind of going in that direction but never quite getting quite that far. If the whole film had just committed to being as extreme and silly as possible you, you'd have had something here. I think it would have worked. Um, as it stands, no it's just weird enough to be kind of weird rather than weird enough to be funny. So yeah, yeah bit of a um, failure.
1: I mean, you, you probably ought not to think too much about the oh villains, Lord, motivations no. and plans because, as you say Scott, the Bond films the you got to remember that if, <laughs> In one Bond film, and only the yes. what Diamonds are forever seventh, sixth, seventh? Yeah, still pretty early. In a, a film that went on sort of series, went on so long the, their great plan is to threaten the Earth from space by using diamonds to extort money. Yeah, having somebody who failed to notice how expensive <laughs> diamonds are.
0: Yes. I mean, even Goldfinger, even the earlier one, is. Quite a silly plot because,
1: because it's going to irradiate gold to make his gold better.
0: Yes, but gold's inherently useless. Yes, it's like it's valuable because we've decided it's valuable. We could probably just have went well, okay, let's not bother with gold then. It's like it makes shiny jewellery and nothing else of any use. So yeah, um,
1: <laughs> it's, it's only still considered valuable because for thousands of years people thought this gold medal, this entire it's quite nice, I would like some more, please. Um, yes, um, it, it's useless stuff. More or less, anyway. Um, yeah. yeah, but, then yeah, diamonds are forever, like, we're going to use thousands and thousands of diamonds to extort some money out of people, but, but, could you not just sell the diamonds? It was really a master, worth De Beers.
0: a master plan by De Beers to get us to buy nuclear irradiated engagement rings. Probably. I don't quite get it. <laughs> That's maybe it. Why not? That'll work. It's, it makes about as much sense as having radioactive things plumbed into a dam, because dams work like that. Uh, okay. I
1: don't even, I, I, how, how did he destroy the thing in the end so, like apparently by destroying the timer that would just stop it and then... <laughs> uh, i don't know
0: the only other thing i want to mention about this film is that it does have it did have some of my, my favorite ever violence against mannequins as people are being thrown from a great height and <laughs> bouncing off it in a, a way that it convinces entirely nobody uh but I, yes i don't know
1: what you're talking about scott that that was clearly um Chin <laughs> Simmons' body that went over that dam and landed there. Mm.
0: Yes, Kudos to the special effects department on this film.
1: Yeah, honestly, it, it falls like it's um, not even like a mannequin, more like it's just some bags full of sand tied together.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: it's really terrible.
0: As is the film, so that fits quite well. I don't want to talk about it
1: anymore. No, but let, <laughs> let's um, let's talk about something. That's clearly better. Um, uh. So, at some point, someone thought, Do you know what? Do you know who would be a great secret agent? Vin Diesel. <laughs> yeah." <laughs> and that happened twice since they made a sequel what, last year, the year before. Well, it's the second sequel, but yeah. with him.
0: Twice. And, okay. <laughs> and once when they thought the only better agent would be Ice Cube. <laughs> Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, um so Scott, tell us about how in every way Xander Cage, played by um Vin Diesel, is most assuredly not Bond.
0: <laughs> so Triple X, uh the turn of the millennium wasn't the brightest of hours for the Bond franchise with the likeable Pierce Brosnan staring down the barrel of an increasingly unlikable set of films. Uh, there were some questioning if it wasn't time for Bond to hang up the Walther and retire to the Bahamas, and there was no shortage of wannabes looking to take over for a new generation – Hence, this big, dumb, wet fart of a film. Again, teaming up director Rob Cohen and Vin Diesel off the back of The Fast and Furious, which, strangely enough, uh, which Triple X would res- retrospectively act as a preview to where Fast and Furious franchise would eventually end up. Uh, Diesel prays XX Sander Cage, I presume? Initially seemingly doing some sort of very early pre-YouTube social experiment, car thievery-cum-bridge-divings thing with some video equipment that immediately makes this film seem like a million years old. Meanwhile, the sharp-suited suave traditional secret agents of the NSA aren't able to infiltrate the murky, tattooed, extreme subculture of Anarchy 99, a Russian terrorist cum paramilitary collective that wants and anarchy. And very
1: messy ice cream.
0: Yes. Uh, I'm presuming that they were aiming to have a- achieved anarchy in 1999, but this film came out in 2002, so still, I applaud their commitment to brand recognition. 2000 AD did the same thing. Seems to be working for them. Anyway, uh, NSA, NSA Bigwig Augustus Gibbons, Samuel L. Jackson, strong arms Cage into working for him to infiltrate and bring down these Near Dwells. Incidentally, I will always remember the character of Augustus Gibbons, mainly because of his ridiculous name, and Jackson's simple and bold introductory line of, I am Augustus Gibbons, to uh, think it was Cage's character, just represents the exact point that my patience for this film's nonsense just was exhausted on first viewing. It's like, no. No, you're not Augustus Gibbons. You're Sam Jackson, and you deserve much, much better than this film.
1: I don't know. The number of bad films he's been in, like, <laughs> yeah, he deserves all he gets, quite frankly. He's, he's made too many bad choices. <laughs> as much as I like Sam Jackson,
0: he had it coming. So, anyway, off Cage goes, worming his way into Yorgi uh, Barton Chokash's gang, under the cover of representing wealthy Americans looking for cars stolen to order, meeting Asia Gento's Yelena, seemingly Yorgi's girlfriend, before revealing herself to be an undercover Russian operative.
1: So, never saw that one coming? Yes. No. <laughs>
0: The two team up to stop Jorgi and Co's plan to start World War 3, that old chestnut, by f- firing off stolen secret biochemical weapons. Yes, so I had little affection for this film back in the day because it was then, as it is now, so brazen in what it's built from. It is the exact same barrel scrapings of a Bond script that Bond films of the time themselves were, so, uh, were using, but this one has tattoos. Uh, every other beat is exactly the same, so, so, any marketing buff of this being Bond for the next generation was most obviously superficial gloss that no one particularly bought then, and even less so now. Now, the next film we'll talk of came out the same year as Triple X, but feels achingly contemporary. Triple X feels Paleolithic. Curiously, <laughs> it's so blatantly of its era that I can't bring myself to have anything like the contempt for it that I had back in the day now. It so typifies the stagnation of Hollywood action films of the era, before they were forced into stealing a few archetypes from other genres and cultures, that it's like a little time capsule of how bad things used to be. It's sort of nostalgic kind of way. It's such a good example of a bad example that it deserves some sort of recognition, as a cautionary tale if nothing else. (laughs) But no, uh, the action scenes are at their very best passable. The plot and characters and motivations are mainly absent. The CG has aged like the inverse of a fine line. And while by most accounts Vin Diesel is a nice guy, the only character he's ever played with any sort of fire is Riddick. And here he seems as bored with his performance as I am. Asia Argento remains Asia Argento. This really is a Bond knockoff in all of the worst ways. It's entirely charmless and in no way deserving of two sequels. It is not, I suppose, the world's worst film, but nonetheless, I am glad that after finishing the sentence, I will never have to think of this film again.
1: (laughs) Yeah, um, Triple X, it's. I mean, (laughs) it's a
0: film that was there.
1: Yeah. (laughs) It's in many ways perfectly competent. Um, it has competently done action sequences. It has some nice settings, mm. but it's so yeah, it's so stale, mm. so generic and derivative, and it's just so boring. Yeah, it, uh, I, you, it would be difficult to call this film bad. It's really it's it's competent in a lot of ways. You know, it, it's well enough put together. Mm-hmm. There's nothing egregiously stupid about it for the most part. It's yeah. so generic. Yeah. Quite astonishingly generic. I mean, the few bits that I might have lifted that way, but there's a, a sequence towards the end, or basically is the end where there's been a hastily put together super spy car, <laughs> which for some reason, I wonder if this is maybe a Fast and the Furious reference, but for all of the high-end cars that he wants, the one that he, Xander Cage wants himself is some. Yeah. 1970s American muscle car yeah. that's hideous and ugly and terrible but apparently we're supposed to think oh this is really cool but not me I don't think that you're <laughs> wrong <laughs> but yeah he's, it's been hastily stuck together by this film's office boy who's this film's cue, you know it's like yeah. completely charisma free pointless character and then they're talking about oh, they can't work out what any of the Bond like secret weapons or missiles and the jet seats stuff do because the guy's handwriting is so bad yes (laughs) i mean it's a fairly weak and obvious joke but you could see that you could get a couple of chuckles from that if it's played just right but no both vin diesel who's like as you say scott pretty much seems bored through all of this film
2: yeah
1: and asia argento in particular is like no, they just play that line or those lines so straight. Yeah. Like it's a really serious thing that this person's handwriting's bad. I suppose, like, being like, it's like sort of, kind of, <laughs> a joke they come back to a couple of times, in a short space of times, like, I press the missile button, I can't, his handwriting's bad, like But no, his handwriting's bad. No, it's played so straight.
2: Yeah.
1: And it's just, there's just nothing to this film. It is, um, it is a thing that is there.
0: I've never it's been not... less convinced by anyone than Vin Diesel when he's about to get sort of battered out of a plane on a parachute, going, I live for this. It's like, nah, nah, you don't. <laughs> uh, you clearly don't, maybe
1: <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, he, he's not invested in a role. Mm. And there are other bits too, it's basically like... It's, whether it's incompetence or laziness, and I, I'm erring towards laziness for the part because, it, as it's just so kind of formulaic and stuck together from parts of other films and things, mm. so, so, it's like just kind of naff stuff. Like, is it, for the most part, a lot of it is. Like, it's like it's well enough produced, and um, even though, first, the the special effects in the avalanche shot, yeah, particularly they look yeah. pretty rotten. Other bits, some of the car chases and stuff, look decent enough.
0: Yeah, the practical uh, stuff is for the most part quite well done. Yeah, yeah it's, I'll, it's I will cool, give it that. And, um, um, much like uh, Fast and Furious, um, r- this is Rob Cohen. Rock right, going, right. Yeah, um, yeah he, he, him, and his team. Uh, I don't know how much of this was second unit stuff, but they know how to do car chases. The the one alloyed positive of the first Fast and Furious film was they know how to do car chases. Uh, they know how to do, uh, capture car noises. That that part of it, I will concede, actually pretty good. I'll give it that. Uh, even if you are using crap cars for it. But then,
1: yeah, then the other part though is like, it's just. I don't know if it's a lack of care. Mm-hmm. Or it's contempt for the audience, or it's like money, or something. But for instance, there's a—I I know that there, there's some similarity in terms of like there's a limited number of ways you could have like a some sort of targeting screen that falls out of something. Look, mm-hmm. at some point we're told that there's a heat-seeking missile.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's clearly a handy camera, some other sort of <laughs> yeah. handheld video camera with a um, tube stuck on it. Yes, <laughs> it's unmistakable. So it's, there are bits of like that throughout the film and there's a bit too they're in Prague it's set mostly in the Czech Republic Then at some point they go into a club and for some reason they're playing the third man theme and I'm like, <laughs> yes. okay I know that's kind of vaguely spy related but I'm watching this thinking I genuinely think they think this is the same city
0: yeah
1: I genuinely think they think this is Vienna and that's why they're playing the third man music.
0: Close enough, it's foreign, right?
1: Yeah, I couldn't work out why on earth that music would be there otherwise. Yeah.
0: Particularly when the rest of your music is basically Rammstein.
1: Yeah. yeah, which I'm fine with because if that was actually Rammstein in the, the style, I assume so. Yeah. That's ridiculous and I'm kind of amused by how <laughs> stupid and ridiculous they are. Um, and I kind of like that song actually, Firefly. But. Yeah, it's I d I don't really think they know where they are, what they're doing. <laughs> Austria, Czech Republic, same thing. Close or enough. not America, not America. Don't <laughs> care. <laughs> yeah, this is um one of a number of roles where Martin Schokash, um, who's a Kiwi I'm pretty sure, um mm-hmm. but is I guess by his name is of um Eastern or Central European descent, yeah. plays Generic, bland, completely insipid and uninspired bad guys. Yeah,
0: uh, you know, for all—not that he's bringing a lot to the table here. I do like Martin Chokash. I think he's been underserved.
1: I, I think oh, he, definitely. Yeah. Um, we talked not that long ago, Scott, about uh, the MTV film with Ian Fox. Ian Fox, Thank yeah. you. I could not remember that name. There. <laughs> Ian Fox Where him he doesn't get. he gets to like, not play quite the same character anymore yeah. mm-hmm. and he's actually quite likeable in that film quite interesting yeah. in that yeah. film yeah. Mm-hmm. so absolutely you're right. he's, he's underserved by the by this sort of role all the time yeah it feels <laughs> like that anyway
0: yeah
1: is he not he's in
0: so the equaliser I think was probably his the equaliser
1: yeah that's that little thing, thing. You know, he's yeah. basically the same role in equaliser more or less yeah. is he not
0: yeah pretty much yeah
1: generic insipid eastern european gangster guy
0: yeah Got nicer here in triple X. That's about <laughs> the
1: the difference. Yeah, yeah. It's um. Beyond that, I don't have much to say about this film because it's just it's. So the word I just used to describe Martin Shawcash's characters is good. It's it. mm-hmm yeah, yeah uh, take it away, please.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's just what annoys me so much about Triple uh, I think more than anything else back at the time, was it, it set its stall out so clearly as being I am going to take over the James Bond torch, I'm going to carry this forward, and it's like N- you're not. This is this is the exact same film as you'd get with something like um, the Bond films of the era that like you're uh, Die Another Day or whatever it was kicking day, around yeah, at the same time. It's it, very Die Another Day
1: like in any respects. Actually,
0: yeah, it, it, it is playing. It is such. It takes so many plays from the same book that it's very difficult to take it as anything other than just a really clear knockoff of what Bond is and when you think about the films we'll talk about next very closely, uh, which which, uh, changed things up and made a bit of a difference to it and um, actually progressed. In a way of this It didn't just go down the same mantra Of the same kind of films that we've been doing With slightly better graphics for the last 20 years Which was really Mm. the stagnation of Bond at the time Uh, This just feels like the absolute minimum possible you could think you could do to try and make a new <laughs> franchise is like let's take what we've been doing previously and give it some tattoos. That that is the difference of it. It's like oh we've got someone who's extreme who snowboards, who might skate a bit, who hangs ollies or whatever you do with the uh, skateboards and, and and surfing. I don't know. Um, hangs tens. I don't. I don't know. Uh, I've I've never skateboarded. I've never surfed. Uh, Charlie don't surf, as you know. Yeah, it just seemed like a really lazy way of trying to appeal to a new generation that think that may at the time uh, have seemed to be tuning off of the Bond franchise stuff because I think the Bond films were, I don't think they were they were ever not successful, but they were maybe getting a bit less successful in comparison to the older stuff. Um, and this was like the laziest possible way to try and take over that kind of uh, mm-hmm. that kind of franchise, and it, it's just that laziness that, that annoys me about it so much. Uh, mm. Let's say, in retrospect, sort of distant from that, and having seen how Bond and other films have kind of progressed since then, I don't have the same kind of ire for it that I do now. But yeah, this this was hot garbage on release and now it's just cold garbage and I don't know if that's better or
1: worse but yeah. oh, it probably won't smell as much I think cold garbage beats hot garbage yes yeah, oh. it's uh, incredibly generic but. final words
0: on this go to the uh, Dinosaur Man nerdcast at Dinosaur ah. Man 15 on Twitter uh, X is poor stupidity and I love it no no movie has tried harder to be cool and been further from it I agree in that <laughs> point yes. uh, but at the same time you get to the point where you're just like sure he's got a heat seeker rocket now and he's snowboarding a Why not?
1: Um, yeah. I said, some of the heat seeker rocket things. It's like, wow, that incredibly laboured and awkward conversation <laughs> about him smoking earlier. Yes. I, I never saw that coming to this. That was never, <laughs> that was so bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that brings us to, in many ways, the, um, it won't be in terms of time, I promise you, with Operation Kid Brother, but the sort of meat of this podcast in that the very same year as Triple X, another film was released that was sort of a response to how formulaic Bond had become. There's a bit of an irony, of course, in that this series itself ended up yes. becoming quite formulaic, particularly by its fifth entry uh, of just a couple of years ago. But a film that so successfully took some of the ideas of Bond and mixed them up and made them exciting and interesting and fresh in a way that inspired in almost entirely the reboot of Bond when it mm. came to Casino Royale. Yes. That is, of course, Doug Lyman's The Bourne Identity. So, Scott, take it away.
0: Yes, so quite the change of gears, this. Uh, uh, The Bourne identity tells us of Matt Damon's Jason Bourne, pulled out of the ocean by a passing trawler with no memory of how two bullets got into him, or indeed anything else about himself, or why the only identifying item that he carries was a now surgically removed, surgically implanted laser projector that shows a Swiss bank account number. Heading on to Switzerland, where the safety deposit box is located, uh, this reveals a passport with identity Jason Bourne in it. Well, that's it. Film's over. Now we know what's going on. Uh, well, no, of course, there's also a, a stash of other passports of varying nationality and name and stacks of cash and a handgun, which ties in nicely with his unexpectedly elite hand-to-hand combat skills. And I'm starting to think there's something unusual about this Bourne character. However, appearing at the bank kicks off a tumult of activity in the CIA's Black Ops division as they try and work out how to bring Bourne back in, dead or alive, with dead apparently being the preference. Uh, They activate a number of similarly deadly agents to hunt Bourne down, including Clive Owen, again showing why he's the best Bond we never had got, uh, to even the other side of the equation. Bourne goes on a lam with Franco-Potente's Marie Kreutz? Kreutz. Kreutz, I think it was. Initially, just opportunistically hired to drive him to Paris to follow the breadcrumbs of his past life, but the relationship soon grows stronger and in the way that only car chases, shootouts and bone crunching combat scenes can engender. Plot-wise, there's not really all that much more to it really, although there's a very strong smoke and mirrors routine going that will stop you realising that. Information is doled out with ruthless sufficiency, keeping you invested in the story of Bourne's past deeds and how they come back to haunt him. Aided greatly by excellent turn from Matt Damon, who I don't think we'd really necessarily have expected to be this good at the action side of things. Now, it's not a pioneer in anything that it's doing, but it's doing an excellent job synthesising the best parts of action cinema from across the globe and mashing it together to create an exceptionally pleasing blend that became quite a template for Western action cinema going forward. And indeed, as I mentioned earlier, for Bond itself, who basically followed this formula to the letter in the Casino Royale reboot, even the parkour segments. Now, its legacy, if you'll pardon the pun, is tempered only by the sequels which told more or less the same story about another three times, which... To be fair, kind of was reasonably successful, uh, but entirely pointless. That aside, there's an awful lot to like here, and from people you'd not necessarily have expected—not just Damon, uh, but director Doug Lehman uh, previously of Swingers fame, of all things—you <laughs> uh, know, it's quite the shift in genres. And I expect the second unit under the director Ale- Alexander Witz deserves a lot more of the credit than he gets uh, credit for, uh, alongside Sar Klein's kinetic editing, which really makes this quite the entertaining film. Indeed, a very good thriller, up there with Matrix in terms of shaping her Western actions cinema is today. Unlike Triple X if you told me this film came out last week I don't think I would have questioned it Uh, apart maybe from the Moby track you don't get a lot of him these days Uh, but anyway I think this is great stuff and really should be watched yeah I I always knew how influential this film was going forward particularly on Bond uh, as a franchise. Uh, Everything that's gone on from Casino Royale was very much taken from this playbook but yeah it's surprising going back to it now just how modern a film from 2002 uh, this was. Yeah, 2002 feels. Uh, this does not feel to have aged a day since then.
1: Uh, no, it, it does not. That's, absolutely, that's nearly 20 years now. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel... Uh, with the possession of, like, kind of notable little Motorola flip phones and stuff, <laughs> yeah, for the most yeah. part, it doesn't... And the lack of flat screens for computer monitors and stuff, it doesn't feel anything like a twenty almost twenty year old film. Yeah, yeah. Not close.
0: Yes, um I I really love this. Um I I, th- I thought it was quite a quite a relation back at the time. I mean, it's not groundbreakingly innovative on a number of levels. I mean, okay, like kung fu movies have existed before then. Car chases have been a thing that has been quite well well before then. Shootouts happened. Th- these sort of things were were all fairly common st- staples. But they were from various different action genres. And this was the first film I think that I'd seen, with possibly the exception of The Matrix. Um, although that was a bit more. It tended more towards being flashy, whereas this was so much more grounded and kind of synthesised all that quite well and made such a compelling case for what you could do with action films combined with thrillers and move that forward. And it really did have quite an effect on the genres. It's a lot more influential than it has been credited for. Just looking back at some of these reviews and um, some of the Metacritic scores that it gets, not that it was ever badly reviewed, but it does not seem that it's really got an awful lot of credit for, I think, the outsized influence that it has. I really like this film and I, mm. I, I, I can't really understand how you, anyone's grown up with action cinema since the uh, since the 80s. The various Arnie films where it's just him punching someone very hard <laughs> or shooting things and then you also were a fan of the John Woo stuff and kinetic shootouts and that kind of thing and other sort of I, things. All this stuff kind of just is mashed together almost perfectly in this film and I think it really does such a great job of pulling that together that is. I don't understand why people, more people don't love this film. Um, not that that's a particularly outrageous position to take, but I think this this does not get the credit that it deserves for moving everything forward in that d- regard.
1: I, I hope you're not criticising Arnie punching things because that is the best of things.
0: Well, <laughs> yes, but he, he could only in well, pu- the
1: lamentations <laughs> of the women or the people being punched.
0: <laughs> he could only punch things so hard. Uh, we need to move the genre forward past him punching people.
1: I, f- I think when you were talking through your introduction to the Born Identity, though, the rum which you required to get through Operation Kid Brother was getting to you a bit, but yeah, I don't, I think I like the Bourne series as a whole quite a bit more than I like the Bourne, did I say Born or Born? I meant Born. If I didn't say Bourne, I meant Born. Um, <laughs> I like the Bourne series as a whole considerably more than I like the Bond series as a whole. mm mm-hmm. Although it's not a fair comparison because Bond has had so many stinkers but also so many films. Yeah, and, yeah. But yeah, it, it really does still feel quite fresh just now. It was fresh and a revelation at the time. The editing, which you mentioned, I really liked it. It was kinetic, but not in the way that the Paul Greengrass sequences, yeah, yeah. the Bourne Supremacy and the Bourne Ultimatum seemed to go too far. It's like, would you just keep the bloody camera still for a moment?
0: Yeah, it's certainly not as heavy on the shaky cam as uh, the, the previous the, the yeah, later ones were, yeah. yeah.
1: This, I think I may actually prefer the Bourne Ultimatum, but that's because even whether maybe it's a bad thing to always find these things out, I just get hooked by mysteries and stuff and, and I want to find stuff out, I want to know stuff. Right. So the Bourne Ultimatum kind of eventually explains the origin of the character and you get some closure and there's a whole, the whole finish storyline about how Jason Bourne was created and stuff, so... I think I like The Bourne the more because that's just because I've got that preference for, for knowing those things even if sometimes it could be argued it makes a film less good, really. Mm. Uh, but yeah, this first one it still, it still feels fresh today. It's so entertaining. It's so well made. Matt Damon's great in it. There's there's enough of like a seed of doubt in there. It's like whether you really should be feeling sympathy for this character.
2: Yeah, yeah. The, but but it's yeah. it
1: sort of played into in the character because the character's like yeah, well I know I'm not good but kind of I also, I don't I, I know this, but also because I don't remember that I don't know this. And does that make me the same person? And that's yeah. kind of interesting. It's played well. So there's enough sim- more than enough sympathy for the character there. When you really think, yeah, probably he's bad. But at the same point, he was doing it because his country ordered him to it and in sort of several ways changed him in a way to make him a weapon. Yeah. In terms of the actual practical stuff, like the car chases, which you also mentioned, I really like the car chases in this because, for one thing the people involved number in them are largely competent. Yes. <laughs> it's not the Blues Brothers yeah. <laughs> or perhaps any Bond film with Roger Moore that had a car chase yeah. or um, so many other films. It's it's competent. The driving's clever, inventive and there are, actually, there are always more than I remember because I remember the being none but there are two or three, things sort of collisions but they're not Hugely destructive. They're not too high speed, and again, made sense because they're driving down the motorway the wrong way. It's going to be unavoidable. Something would happen. Yeah. The only thing that stands out now is that the cars involved in the actual collisions are conspicuously really old cars. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) um, Because they're cheap. (laughs) But at the same time, the fact they are conspicuously old cars really gives away the fact that well, everything that's happening is real. Yeah. Yeah. It's all practical effects. Mm-hmm. They're all really well choreographed um, driving stunts. There's no CGI, there's no cutaways or anything that, to try and fool you. It's all really happening.
0: Yeah, it's not driving a car from one skyscraper to another skyscraper. Oh, <laughs> oh, <right>. oh
1: <laughs> That was one of the Fast and Furious yes, lessons, yes. The one with Ronda Rousey in it. Yeah. Whatever one that was, 42? I, I forget where we are now. Mm. Um less enough talk enough. I've talked less. Enough talk. I know... Brain work. Enough talk of Terrible's <laughs> um, Vin Diesel films, please. No, Yeah, and that... To, to go back to Bond and being in the same city, in fact, to, you compare the driving sequences and the car chasing stuff in this film mm-hmm. to A View to a Kill. Yeah. Night day, Another absolute <laughs> stinker of a Roger Moore Bond film and where that car chase ends in... The Renault, Renault five or Renault, no, not Renault five, it's like a Renault nine or eleven or something like that hmm. that he's drive. It's irrelevant, but I, just, I don't like not remembering stuff um, that he's driving. Gets hit side on and suddenly is half a car and he's just driving along with <laughs> the front half of the car, <laughs> yeah, because cause that's exactly how car crashes happen. But okay, whereas in this, no, he's and he's just being really clever and he's driving a little mini down the steps and stuff and. and the earnestness with which they approached that and the competence with which it's performed is yeah. so pleasing. Mm. And a large part of why it stands up so well.
0: Yeah, it was a really useful reset from the absolute ridiculous nature of how Bond was getting at the time to something that was...
1: I mean, oh, invisible cars? Yeah. Ridiculous, you say?
0: <laughs> um, I mean, something that, When you think about it in the abstract, it's still quite high concept, but felt incredibly grounded. It felt so much more realistic in the sort of genre that it really did change the game. Um.
1: Yeah. I mean, even like the, the hand to hand combat stuff, it's so mm-hmm. many films and especially it happened in triple X, so, mm-hmm. so many bits and I, and I hate it. Whereas like the characters survival in any given scene, might display so much to luck and it can not believe it. It's like, mm-hmm. but they've just fired a minigun at him and not a single bullet hit them, That yeah. just not seem um, feasible. bears in this, like the hand to hand combat stuff, like, like, Clearly, something could have gone wrong. He could have caught a stray bullet on occasion, but for the most part, it's like his supreme skill, knowledge of surroundings, and stuff. And um, and in an environment where like, it wouldn't be feasible for like the MPs at the US consulate to fire on him because they would hit people. Yeah. Um. So he's got like a hand there, that, an upper hand. That he can't. They're not going to shoot at him. Mm-hmm. Um. But it makes everything feasible, reasonable, and then for believable that um. He was able to take all of these people out without it seeming like he's some sort of robot or something. Yeah,
0: there's nothing immediately outlandish about all of it.
2: Exactly. Like, it, exactly. It,
0: it has at least a veneer of believability that which Bond at the time certainly did not have, and uh, that that really did make all the difference for the way that, that I certainly I feel about this film yeah it, it just makes it a, a hell of a lot better and more believable uh experience and i think that really does help it an awful lot
1: yeah and there's things too, like, like how they track them so it one of the few points where this fails is something that so many films have done and particularly of that time it's like of the basic you know enhance thing where it's like there'd be quality enough high enough quality video cameras now that you could read a license plate like that but this one, they've got a terrible shot of a car in an alleyway. Well, how will we read the license plate? We'll press the enhance button and suddenly magic. Mm-hmm. Um, so that but that's one of the very few points in this film where everything else, even the technology for the most part, doesn't seem unreasonable. Mm-hmm. Um and they talk a wee bit about the pills they've had and the ways they've conditioned to people. It's not even like going down like the MK Ultra thing. It's more just like a mention. Um and there's a lot of, sort of psychological Manipulation you can do to people but it's never suggested you're like super soldiers or anything yeah 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 they're just, they're just hugely competent people who have been coerced or trained or some way to be to make better use of it without it seeming unhuman or superhuman um, and then the technology they're doing they're doing sensible things like there's a scene where Walton Goggins I noticed yeah yeah um, <laughs> in a very small role they're talking about how they treat I mean, that actually scene stands out because I, I don't really care how you trace them yeah. it's not important but they talk about how they worked at where it was going by like well we checked all the places that's where we made phone calls for ages and we figured this is the most reasonable one Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it wasn't magic satellites tracking them yeah. it wasn't incredible luck or anything you know it was just like yeah, it makes sense. We'll, we'll check here. all oh, look, here is. Yeah. <laughs> and they're just using like video cameras inside things. And there's no great technological thing how they um, they found him in, Zurich? Isn't it Zurich? Not Geneva. Yeah. Uh, the parts of Zurich. And he's, uh, they find him, he's found he's gone to the drop at the bank because they have an informant on the staff there who when he sees something odd gives him a call. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's, there's no, no great mystery or anything. It's just... I like that low key nature to it. It's yeah, so yeah. appealing. So yeah, it's I say it, it's grounded, which Bond absolutely was not. Mm-hmm. With its the Bond at that point was doing massive space weapons, yeah, um, <laughs> and invisible cars and ice hotels with rockets um, being fired through them, and perfect surgery and dream masks. It was it was very much at that time in. So many ways, the anti-bond. Yeah, and it was so refreshing.
0: Yes, and yes. Uh, I believe you mentioned Bond stole quite liberally from this formula. I mean, it, it's very difficult to watch Casino Royale and this in the Double Bill and not feel like you've watched the same film
1: twice. Yeah. <laughs> and they're only four years apart, too. Yeah. There, there was not a lot of time between them. It's like the producers of Bond, but all oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. See we'll have that. I guess. Yes. Have some of that. I'll be having that. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, much as I love the uh, the later Bond films, I think they've all been very good. Um, but yes, this this is clearly the template that they're stolen from, and uh, good artists copy and great artists steal. I don't, I don't can't remember exactly what that quote is, but yes, um, th- this is as good a template as any to steal from, and I think it's uh, it did, did wonders for not just the Bond franchise, but you know, the action cinema. And, just in general for the West as I think has taken it from this uh, particular formula, uh, even stuff like comic book movies tends to wind up having some sort of sequence that you could just track back to this film um, Okay, I bet you could track it back from this film to where that film <laughs> stole it from, uh, but th- this this does such a great job of uh, synthesising it that it's, uh, uh, yeah, I think it deserves, deserves much more credit than it gets Final word on this, we'll uh, submit to uh, at mtholler on Twitter uh, Hi Matt uh, All I've seen from this uh, podcast the this, selection this is Born which it seems great on paper but he never never manages to stick with him after he watches it. I think this highlights how you can't put anyone in a double seven like role. I think that's wrong and I will fight you uh, <laughs> no, I, and, I, and I will bite yeah. you <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I do think that Matt Damon does really well in this film. Um, I, I, I kind of mentioned it in passing, but uh, yeah, I think for someone who you definitely would not have associated with an action film before this, uh, as best I can gather, I think he does really well uh, in this role. And. Um, his acting chops brings a lot more believability to the whole amnesia storyline, which could be seen as a little bit haggard, uh, but I think he sells it quite well. So yes, I, I do disagree and I will fix you at yeah. the venue of your choice.
1: And I think he'd already sort of put in his bona fides and Goodwill hunting of like being believably sort of physical and raw and also intelligent, which kind of really helps yeah, with yeah. this character. I yeah, I can
0: see that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That he's like, he's not dumb, mm-hmm. um, but he's kind of, because the film as a whole, it, is smarter in many ways than these things tend to be. Yeah. We're not talking like high intellect or anything, but it, it's smart and it treats its audience with a bit more intelligence than a lot of things do as well. Yeah. It's, it doesn't spell everything out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it has enough faith in its audience and in, in its storytelling and other ways to not have to spell everything out. Yeah, yeah. At least not to signpost it or like... Um, so yeah, uh, it's just a really, really good film. Mm-hmm successful.
0: Yes, uh, in traditional measures, probably the best film we've spoken about today. Depending on your your mood at the time, you may get more joy out of some of the, some of the other films we've spoken about. Uh, I'm looking at you, okay Connery, uh, but in terms of recommending one particular film out of this podcast this would be the one that I'd think would be easily easiest to go for in a conventional the, level.
1: This is the one that's unequivocally a good film. Yes. <laughs> Operation Kid Brother, I would say is very much an entertaining film but it is also unequivocally not a good film yeah <laughs> and the rest falls somewhere in between those two I guess yeah with the exception of Never Too Young To Die which can just fall out of the window and into the sea as far as I'm concerned I'm suddenly in a plane in this metaphor <laughs> I don't know planes that you normally have open, but openable windows the helicopters yeah look, I just don't like that film <laughs> <laughs> the rest at least had something of merit to talk about That oh, one well, not so much
0: right so that will bring us to a merciful close um, back with you fairly soon but until such time we will bid you adieu if you want to talk to us about this or anything else in particular you can do so uh, either podcast at fudsonfilm.com on the email or at fudsonfilm on twitter or facebook.com slash fudsonfilm on surprisingly enough Facebook so yes uh, until such time take care of yourself and each other we bid you adieu and I'm sure Drew will do too.
1: Hasta la próxima